is the most... Uh, but how is now doing Macri? A little bit better, bad? What is economic <laughs> now in Argentina? In Argentina, it's a disaster. Uh, but uh, in some sense, the disaster is because... Uh, we did a disaster before that. I know. Uh, but Macri is not a great uh, president, it's just more or less. Uh, no, but here I know I had so many conflicts with my wife's friend years ago there, yeah. who were secretly sympathetic with, uh, with Peronism and so on. But mm -hmm. I told them, Peronism is maybe one of, uh, the way I see, one of the main causes for Argentinian struggle, and I, I don't understand leftists. Okay, you have left Peronism and so on, but basically it's a form of fascism, my God. The whole formula, class peace, strong state, which guarantees peace, between, it's so obvious. And, okay, but let's not lose time, that's the last thing. Will you need something to eat? Some no. small desserts or will no. you survive? No, I will survive perfectly. I will concentrate uh, you in see, the interview. We yes. people say we are privileged, but we are the only true Stalinists who are <laughs> ready without food to do it. <laughs> no, we really are. Okay, just water and then we begin. That's it. Just I Okay. So just, just wine. Both of you are you mobile in the picture. Yes. On when I'm finished, I can move it to here. But if you want to put it where you want, if you think that there is better, let, let, you, you, let you move it directly. Okay. okay, okay. I put this here. I give us water. Uh, okay, 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 okay. You know which country worries me now, really? I understand poverty and so on, but it can be a catastrophe. Do you follow what is going now in South Africa? When they want to take the land? Okay, I understand it. It's horrible injustice. But how to avoid the Zimbabwe catastrophe, no? Because whatever you say, the, uh, the white farmers there are very efficient. They make the country function, no? Well, efficient is the problem because you see, everything must be efficient. Yeah. Uh, half of the population will be out of the yes. system. That's a yeah, and it's a it's a catastrophe, I think, you know. Yeah. And uh, and my friends who are black leftists tell me the corruption in African National Congress is crazy. It's absolute the corruption there, you know. And they are doing exactly what shouldn't be done. To cover up their own corruption, they are now blaming the whites, you know. Please, okay, but then you can be here wherever you want. I, I must be here? This is, this is no, you don't, no, 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 be where it's comfortable. No, no it's so comfortable, it's for, okay. me, for me it's comfortable. Okay, okay. I, I sent the questionnaire because could be easier, maybe go faster. Yeah. Uh, well, the, 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 the first question is... Well, uh, we, sorry, we are on your recording, yes. we begin. Very good, yes. Uh, when was the last time that you visited Argentina? Oh, it was, it must be 10 years ago. Uh, and for 10 years, which is the remembering that you have about Argentina for this time? I don't think this will be very interesting for you because uh, my memories are of a very private 
nature. Mm-hmm. I don't remember, I remember particular details, like, you know, Ateneo, there, uh-huh. or others, the nice bookstores, uh, the bookstores which are also cafeterias, or not expensive restaurants, but moderate, moderate places, ordinary, to eat like things like choripan and so on, this ordinary thing. With choripan, why are there still idiots who want to eat McDonald's in Argentina? I never got it. This everyday, everyday life, this then uh, uh, in some parks, this uh, lively streets with, uh, which are open alive in the evening. Buenos Aires, I remember it as a city, because I don't know what is your experience, but in Estados Unidos, in United States, cities are disappearing, I claim. For example, when I was young, Santa Monica in Los Angeles was a myth, lively. That street, the third street, I think, is now concrete shopping malls. Public life is disappearing. So this is one of my fond memories there in Argentina. Then this may surprise you, but since I am heavy diabetic, I was surprised by never, not even in the most developed countries like United States, did I see such high quality of stores for diabetic food. Uh-huh. You know, you get 20, 30 types of cakes without sugar and all that and so on and so on. So, I... Uh, you miss Argentina. You miss I do miss at this level. Unfortunately, I was always busy and so on that I wasn't able to do, maybe, if I will get it. You know, I'm a crazy guy who likes gold. This is hell for me. My best holiday was last year with my son. You know where are Svalbard Islands, mm-hmm. north of Norway, and you fly one hour north. Practically in the pole. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's so beautiful, you know. You can, and so my dream, as you can imagine, is uh, is Tierra uh, del Fuego, or in the south there, or some mountains and so on. That's where I would really like to be. Tierra del Fuego is in the latitude of Oslo uh, in Norway, and then it's an ideal place for you. Absolutely ideal place, or maybe there are some mountains up there, yes, you know. Yes, in the Andes. At the sea. Yeah, 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 this is, this is my area. People, uh, people identify maybe too much tourist Argentina with all these cliché images. Uh, pampas, and then, uh, 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 how do you call them, your cowboys? Uh, yeah, gauchos. Gauchos riding. But I read in the history of Argentina that this image was created in early 19th century by British visitors. <laughs> you know, this is... Oh, the first, the first writers about Yeah, the South they South created it and the then you adopted No, no, I... Uh, I, uh, I and, uh, at some point... Uh, the history of Argentina fascinated me. I always like to be the devil's advocate. So for some time, this may surprise you. I was able at that time to read a little bit Spanish. I was surprised by the figure of who was your dictator, Rosas, in the, in the, in the 1820, 30s, 40s, no? How... Uh, he was not simply only bad. It's much more complex. You cannot just dismiss him. And I was, this was 
a book that I was, it may shock you, tempted to write. A kind of a revisionist parcel. He was horrible also. Uh, rehabilitation of Rodas, you know. Uh, so uh, the, the history uh, fascinated me and so on. But I was never, I must tell you, and this many people were shocked at it, uh, precisely as some kind of a leftist, I was never trapped by Peronism. I, I know there were some leftist tendencies in Peronism, but I think the basic formula of Peronism still remains that of a populist fascism. A strong authoritarian government controls both poles, working workers and capital, tries to introduce some justice and so on, but for me this never works in the long term. It brings corruption, it brings uh, immobility and so on and so on. So I was never seduced by Peronism. And also more generally, this also brought me a lot of trouble. I am a radical leftist, but not a naive leftist. I don't expect a revolution or what. My left means only this. We are obviously approaching some serious problems. My God, even big corporate persons like Zuckerberg, who is an idiot, but doesn't matter, Bill Gates and so on, are saying this. Capitalism cannot survive the way it is. The problem is that I don't think that populism is the answer. I have a strong... This was also the reason. At the end, I was in very bad relations with... Ernesto Laclau and Chantal Mouffe, mm. who proposed this formula of leftist populism. I, I and you are not agree with that? No, no. If for no other reason, why not? Okay, let's go not into theory, but into more complex stuff. Don't you think that the idea of populism at its best, nobody will accuse Podemos in Spain on, of totalitarianism, but their basic idea is, forget about ideological schemes, listen to real people, to their problems, and so on, what people really care, really want, really worry about. I think that the situation today is so complex that I know I don't trust intellectuals, they don't have a solution, but do you think that ordinary people are any better? I don't think so. Look, what's the tragedy? Even with my good friend, who is now popular after being a minister, Yanis Varoufakis. Mm -hmm. There's always my problem with him. He says this idea, people should be allowed to vote freely, to really say... And I tell him, look at the, for example, immigrant crisis now. But many people worry about immigrants. So, uh, most of the people now in Western Europe would be against immigrants. So should you trust them here and so on? No, I think that uh, we are in a very difficult problem where, a uh, situation where the problems that we have, uh, you need some kind of a theory or, or deeper insight even to identify the problem. You cannot play this old Maoist, I'm referring to Mao Zedong game of Let's just listen to the people. If you listen to the people, you get often some raci racism, even spontaneous racism and so on. Even to identify the problems, we need 
reflection. For example, ecology. People forget that even to identify the problem, ocean hole, global warming, you don't see the ocean hole up there. It's science which tells you. And this is what makes so problematic today. Uh, we are approaching problems, but, and this is for me, I think, the big problem, I hope you agree, for the left. Capitalism is approaching big troubles, but let's face it, the left today doesn't have a consistent answer to what you do. I was on Wall Street, Occupy Wall Street, and I was always asking them, what do you want, really? And I got some kind of a confusion always, less corruption, more efficient government and so on. Okay, I told them, is it then still capitalism with more welfare? It's something much more radical and so on and so on. They don't have it. That's why the left is getting moralistic. Political correctness, me too. This happens always, I claim, when you don't have an alternate proposal. And this was the true tragedy. Sorry to jumping, if you ask me, with Chavez in Venezuela. He was, for me, to be very vicious, a Fidel Castro with money. He was not, as far as I can see, solving problems. He had first enough money to throw money at problems. It spent. It spent, yeah. And uh, I know from friends there how many attempts he made. He was experimenting all the time. Self-management of the worker, giving factories to the worker, cooperatives, and so on and so on. Maybe it worked here and there, but globally it did not work. And that's why we left it, instead of just crying, ooh, global capitalism, uh, uh, new forms of fascism, and so on and so on, we have seriously to ask ourselves, do we have to offer, what do we have to offer to the people? Do we have an alternate to the capitalism? To the, to the, and what does it mean? How to do it? It's a, a, a very tragic situation, but I talk too much, please. No, 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 no. It's, it's the same thing that I am thinking about the population, because now some people think that Trump, uh, Donald Trump in the United States, is the first Peronist to be president of the United States, because he is a, a populist too, and, uh, and any kind of similarity between Trump and Peron, and you think that this idea that Trump could be the first Peronist President in the United States is part of the narcissism of the Argentinians, or maybe it's possible that the United States is going to this kind of... Uh, well, I hear, uh, hear first, insofar as Peronism was basically mm -hmm. uh, a form of, it may be much softer than Nazism, but a form of fascism. Okay, I would not lie because it simplifies the terms to call Trump a fascist. I will tell you why. It's not that he is better, but Often, today's leftists, don't you think, they see something they don't like. And instead of concretely analyzing it, the easiest way to do it is to just apply the old uh, terms. Oh, it's fascism again. No, it's not simply uh, fascism again. Second thing that, uh, I, it's very simplified analysis, but I think it's true. Uh, we should not focus on Trump. But we should focus on the 
failure of the United States political establishment, which opened up the space for Trump. I, I think that the big event in United States is the failure of what, in old Marxist terms, we called hegemonia ideologica, ideological hegemony. There was a gap there, mistrust of the people in the ruling political consensus and so on. And Trump filled in this space. How? Yes, maybe in a Peronist way, that is to say, combining left and right. That's why I find very interesting the person of Steve Bannon. You know that he consciously plays this game of even flirting with Bernie Sanders, of incorporating some leftist demands which no social democrats today would dare to implant. For example, uh, Bannon's misunderstanding with Trump, you know, that he wanted to raise taxes, not to lower them, to 45% and so on and so on. And uh, we know this in Europe. Uh, in Europe, uh, uh, <coughs> I was shocked, my friends from Poland told me, this conservative Christian government of uh, Kaczynski, who is the great eminence in Poland, they implemented some social measures like lowering retirement age, better health care and so on, which no, no moderate mainstream leftist party would dare to do. The same in France, Marine Le Pen. He was the only one of the big parties who dared to directly address working class. And my enemy here is the predominant leftist ideology, which is this politically correct moralism. They, I find some truth in this, that they, this modern liberal left, they were so focused on these problems of feminism, multiculturalism, and so on and so on, that at some point they lost contact with, let's call it ordinary people, and this populist right stepped in. This is why, in spite of all this uh, Russian meddling, I'm no friend of Putin, you know, absolutely not. But I think the main reason of Trump's uh, victory was the disgraceful way Hillary Clinton blocked Bernie Sanders and the left wing. I read some analysis which demonstrate in United States that Many Democratic voters were so shocked by this Hillary Clinton's uh, way of uh, doing that uh, they did not, many of them, vote for Trump, but they abstained. They say it's too much for us. And I am... Uh, so what I am afraid is that to return to this liberal left establishment logic embodied by... Uh, uh, Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton is not enough to win over Trump. Now, I'm not advocating any kind of revolution. This is crazy. But I'm just saying, it, this is why I never liked, I'm just saying it's not enough to plea for the return to the old establishment. Trump moved 
change the situation. Categories at the same time, but the, the, the idea that the, they use uh, some things from the left. Absolutely. Is, uh, you know, Steve Bannon, I saw an interview with Farid Zakaria on CNN, where he said, my idea is the coalition between Trump and Bernie Sanders. He directly said this. And my idea is that uh, this is what we should learn. We cannot simply return to the old, uh, old uh, establishment logic of left categories, categories. categories. Uh, uh, liberal left. This, uh, if, because Trump is precisely the proof that these categories don't work. work. Don't work. So we are in a. Although things may appear to go on okay, but uh, you know, moments in social life when. There is no firm ideological hegemony, are extremely dangerous. Uh, I read somewhere a very good. Do you know that guy? Okay, he is sim simplist and so on. He is now a big bestseller. Yuval, maybe you interviewed him even. No. Yuval Harari, you know that. Ah, Harari, Homo yes. Yeah. He makes in his Homo Deus one point very well. For democracy to function, even if you have strong oppositions, there always has to be a certain set of shared values, procedures, and so on and so on. This is why, as he points out, if you have too big cultural or ethnic or religious differences, you cannot play simple democracy, majority rules. You have to play coalition, negotiations, and so on and so on. And this is uh, missing today. This... Uh, Consensus, like in America before Trump. Democratic Whoever won, they shared so many basic presuppositions that the system functioned. If Democrats lost, they said, okay, let's wait four years or eight, it will be... Um, I think Trump is something much more radical. Yeah, yeah, it's not just the normal exchange within the consensus. This consensus itself is changing. And uh, uh, to be very clear here, I am not saying that, well, I'm not crazy, we need the Leninist revolution, you know, you have one question afterwards, in what sense I am a Leninist? Well, maybe you know my answer, for three reasons. First reason is, I always say, Repeat Lenin today, not in the sense of doing the same. That is one of the, the titles of your books. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I make it clear that Lenin is there to repeat, is to do it again, but precisely correcting Lenin's mistakes. What do I mean by this? You know which Lenin I like? At the end of the World War I, or in World War I, not only Lenin, the entire left was shocked by this patriotic turn. You know, all social democratic parties in Europe, when the war began, voted for war credits and so on. And Lenin was totally devastated. And what did he do? He withdrew into Switzerland, basically, and started to read Hegel. I mean, this is the Lenin I like. This idea of our old world has died, and we don't have simple answers to it. It's not enough to stick to the old line. We have to rethink everything. Now, I'm not one of those Trotskyist idiots who claim, oh, if only Lenin were to survive two, three years more, we would have a different Soviet Union. No, 
somehow at a different, at a deeper level, Stalinism was there present as the most probable version. And uh, so Lenin cannot be simply excused, you know. But you know, where uh, I uh, uh, still admire Lenin, the last years of Lenin's life, he was pretty desperate. And, okay, let's not lose time with this, but I will tell you something I wrote about it now which shocked me. You know, everybody who tries to redeem Lenin quotes his famous testament where he said we should depose Stalin and so on. But how many people noticed a simple thing? What are Lenin's arguments against Stalin? It's not the political line, Stalin is too right. No, it's, a, it's shocking. It's a question of manners. Lenin is saying Stalin is too rude and so on and so on. And this is not just with Stalin. I find this so admirable. It's not radical enough. Lenin was guilty for it. But how all of a sudden in the last years Lenin saw it that this brutality of political life is extremely dangerous. And all of a sudden she was... Uh, Obsessed with this idea, just bring more civilized talk, politeness, and so on and so on. Also, in his other proposals, you had this, and this is very actual today, incidentally, with Donald Trump. You know, we are entering a new age of political brutality. So this is one thing. Uh, second thing is what I already said. This awareness that the old left is over. We have to rethink everything. And so to be a Leninist today is not to return to Lenin, but to scrap even okay. Lenin and start... You know, I quote in one of my books, Lenin wrote a wonderful text about climbing a high mountain. Mm -hmm. When he said in a revolutionary process, you see you are on the wrong path, and then you have to return down to the starting point and do it again. This is what the left has to do it. But otherwise, when people ask me why you are a Leninist, you must know my joke about that. Lenin, learn, learn, learn. No. No, oh, Please. that's it's a wonderful... Uh, uh, when I was even in a young, uh, uh, young student it's under communism or oh. high school, we have in school rooms that famous advice of Lenin to young people. What said the learn, learn, and learn. Okay, the joke goes like this. Uh, they ask, those legendary jokes where you ask three people, that they ask Marx, Engels, and Lenin, would you prefer to have wife or a mistress? And Marx, more conservative, says wife. Engels, more uh, bon vivant, says mistress. Lenin says, I want to have both. And they joke, my God, isn't Lenin a skeptic wife? Then they ask him, but why, Comrade Lenin? And he says, because so that I can tell my wife that I'm with my mistress and to my mistress that I'm with my wife. And then they ask him, but what do you do then? He says, learn, learn, and learn. <laughs> Isn't this, if we say wife is for the established order, mistress is transgression, that's what we need to do today. We really don't know, basically, what is happening today, what type of new society is emerging. This is why I even said to the horror of my leftist friends, mm -hmm. and I hope we agree here, that 
Today, our formula, this, should no longer be the Marxist thesis 11 on Feuerbach. Philosophers have only interpreted the world, we have to change it. We should maybe turn it around. In the 20th century, we maybe try to change the world too fast without knowing what we are doing. Today, we have to step back and interpret it again. We don't know. Look, I remember I met him later in Paris, your friend. Okay, friend, you made also an interview with him, Guy Sorman. Yeah. His, what goes on in China today? His solution for me is too simple. His solution is, it's not real capitalism, because capitalism... I say, okay, but then what it is? China is, for me, maybe the saddest lesson that we got. On the one hand, let's admit it, what they achieved in the last 40 years or what is simply breathtaking. I don't think there was ever a period, even in the United States early capitalism, where just in 30, 40 years, a country passed from poverty to such explosive development and so on and so on. But the sad thing for me is that uh, it proves how nonetheless capitalism, okay, we call it market capitalism, I will not struggle how to find it, this explosive capitalist development can work very well with an authoritarian state. And again, I... Well, at the beginning... Yeah. The, uh, the neighbors from Asia showed the same. Korea was a dictatorship. Not and only this, even the model for me is, you know, my friend who is a right-winger but intelligent, mm-hmm. the German philosopher Peter Sloterdijk. Maybe you know what he said. They asked him a couple of years ago a very interesting question. To which person from our time will they be building monuments 50 or 100 years in the future? You know what was his answer? Lee Kuan Yew, the founder of Modern, and when I was in Singapore, they showed me a movie, you know, when Deng Xiaoping began his reforms, uh, he said uh, Singapore should be model for all of China and so on and so on. But this is very sad, the formula is simply uh, kind of a authoritarian capitalism. Yeah, was the same that Pinochet? Yeah. And, and, and isn't it? And, and, yeah. And Chile developed a lot. Developed a lot, The, the yeah. question is what will be the future is after that, the whole idea, innocent idea, that from the competition of the market will be the competition in the yeah. politics. And I think that this is not will. No, no, no. Work. I am always, many Marxists always have this idea, we have to suffer now, but then it will be better. Well... You know what Freud says here. Once a communist tried to turn around Freud and told to Freud, first we will have to suffer a lot, then it will be paradise. And Freud says, well, I believe with first part of your statement, but not with the second. <coughs> no, no. If anything we learn from history is mistrust. You shouldn't trust those who promise suffering now for the later happiness. Basically, it never can. But what I mean is that this is what would have worried me. You know, people, when people were claiming it was true till now, and I can be convinced of the opposite, but I doubt, it was true till now that capitalism, sooner or later, brought democracy, a demand. Let's take precisely the example of Pinochet or of Korea. Uh, 
A dictatorship triggered the development. When it developed to a certain point, it gave birth to a radical demand for democracy. Even in Brazil it was the same, and so on. But uh, things like Singapore, China, and so on, make me, I'm asking myself, what do you think here? My impression is that I doubt that this still holds. I don't trust liberals who think with all this after development. That, after that, we will cut democracy. I am afraid, I am afraid that, that there is something genuinely Maybe new. Maybe when you change the scale, yeah. you change everything. Yeah. And China is so big to repeat the same uh, mm. way that did Singapore or the Korea or the, the Chile. But the question is, which is the system of the world? China. This is capitalism. We no, it's something genuinely new. It's not capitalism in the classic sense. But it's also not simply some authoritarian regime. You know what is so... But this is the future for the world? One of the tendencies. That's what I'm afraid of. Mm -hmm. And here, Trump fits in. Mm -hmm. What makes me so sad is that, uh, you know, I remember two years ago, three, when there was that tension between Turkey and Russia, when Turks shot down two Russian fighters which entered from yes. Syria, then it was almost war, they said, and so on. And from Turkey, they asked me, what do I think about this tension? And I told them, okay, tension up, tension down, but aren't Erdogan and Putin very similar in some sense? Yeah. They're both, uh, their formula is, Precisely this authoritarian nationalism, so I proposed, and for this I was afraid to enter then Turkey for one year, I proposed the term Putogam, like condensation of Putin and Erdogan. In any case, new Putogams will rule us. And you have this in India, Modi, and so on. This combination of authoritarian nationalism with capitalism. But with capitalism. And this really is showing that it's and in a way, isn't also Trump moving in this direction? That's the meaning of his formula, America first. That's the new formula. America first, Russia first, India first. Turkey first. Turkey first. Uh, and the case, the difference with China is in the other part of the world, there is a person that uh, yeah. is an authoritarian. Yeah, in yeah. the case of China, it's a party. Yes, was a party. Yeah. And, uh, was a party. Uh, this is a very interesting question because at a certain point, how do you pronounce his name? I don't know, Xi or what, he, the he, leader. He, he, he. Yeah. he tried to impose himself as a leader, you know, at the level of Mao, his name. But I read recently that there are some resistances to it, you know, that uh, it doesn't... Well, uh, until now, we... we can say that the difference between China and the rest of the authoritarianism with capitalism is China don't have a person that is the authoritarian. The party is the authoritarian. This could change in the future. I, I, I think that no. No, I don't I think, think also. They, I don't think it's a too complex situation. But they already have an authoritarian. This is always... I read some very good books about how China actually functions. Those who rule are now, it was nine, now there are seven people, the standing committee of the Politburo. And you know what's so fascinating? With all the big congresses debate, it's like divine appearance, a mysterious event. 
at the end of a congress, every, I don't know how many years, they are presented. Nobody knows, okay, there are rumors who, and I think that this non-transparency, you don't debate who will be the new members of the Politburo. The names are simply not given in advance. This is the key authoritarian element, this mysterious appearance from nowhere. Not, they don't even pretend to debate different names. The essential difference is that they don't pretend to have a differentiation of power. Justice is different to Congress. No, no, no. no. Yeah, These yeah. are the big differences. And obviously this is related with press, because if you don't have a differentiation between the yeah, party yeah. and the justice, obviously you couldn't have free press. But I read a good book, I've written about it, uh, I forgot sorry, the name, where it says, you know how delicate in this sense the Chinese system is? Do you know, uh, one, I like these symptomatic crazy things when they happen. You know that a Chinese dissident, it's a true story. Uh, uh, denounced Communist Party to the court. He said Communist Party committed some crimes, I think he was referring to Tiananmen or whatever, and I want to go to, to, go to court. Yeah. You know, he got an answer in two months. It's not a joke. You know what was the answer? No. Sorry, but we looked at all our registrations. No organization like Communist Party exists. <laughs> you know that Communist Party rules but it has no legal status. It's very mysterious. All communist in, communism in China rules in this way, it's totally not formalized. It's not an institution. It doesn't exist. Uh, legal status is not. And I think this is the formula of authoritarian government at its purest that you have some legal system, you have a government, blah, blah, parliament, but everything is decided in advance, but basically. If, if you synthesize the question yeah. is, the market dominates all the world. The yeah. difference is between the countries that are still being democratic in the mm -hmm. sense that they have different yeah, powers, yeah, yeah, yeah. or countries that have authoritarianism. And here it's right here. Are... I'm not a Leninist totalitarian. <laughs> of course, I prefer democracy. But what worries me is this strengthening of this more authoritarian type, which, although, incidentally, I'm not afraid, this is crazy, when some of my leftist critics, you know, to me, don't you see Trump already is fascism in power? No, let's be serious. United States is a very complex country with so many independent institutions and so on and so on. Trump in power in the United States is not the same as, let's say, Marine Le Pen in power in France. France is much more centralized there. It would have been much more dangerous. So I don't feel this, but uh, in a way, the tendency is unfortunately the same. But you know where I see when you said market is global, this is my, when you ask me also in one of the following questions about what is the symptom today and so on. I think, and I repeat this all the time in a very naive way, that the big question today is, are we still Fukuyama is Fukuyama. That is one of the questions. Isn't yeah, and Fukuyama. And I didn't like it when people... Uh, did the guy go or what? Yes, yes, yes. Okay. But you, 
even better. <laughs> I didn't like people just dismissing Fukuyama as an idiot and so on. In practice, almost we were Fukuyamaists because even many radical leftists thought basically the system we have liberal democratic capitalism is the best we can imagine. We can do some changes, more abortion rights, more gay rights, more tolerance, more health care, but basically we Fukuyama, as you, if you interviewed him, must know. Even he doubts this now. He sees problems, I also see them. And I always repeat, I see at least four problems. First problem would be to be very simple ecology. I don't think ultimately that, although we should use market where we can, like you tax more the polluters and so on, but catastrophes are possible and will happen all the time where you need a much greater, larger, stronger international organization. My good friend uh, Jean-Pierre Dupuy, D-U-P-U-Y, a French theorist of catastrophes, was as an envoy of European Union in Fukushima three days after. And he told me something horrible. He told me that for a couple of hours, Japanese government was in panic because it looked that they will have to evacuate the entire Tokyo area, 30 million people. Where? How? We need to get prepared to things like that. The whole parts of the world are getting uninhabitable. Like, I was there with my son, part of my, you know, I'm a snob privately. I live modestly, but uh, once a year I take my son and tell him, let's do something crazy. Like, uh, for one week we went, I got a good offer, not too expensive. You know that Burj El Arab hotel, like, yes, say? Yes. And I was there for one week, I got the smallest room, just 220 square meters, just two floors. But what I'm saying is that there they told me every summer they get a week or two of over 50 degrees Celsius. Even for them it's getting too much. And the saddest news that I got is that now they suspect that the same is beginning to happen in this most inhabited part of the world, China the coast between Beijing and Shanghai. That, so, even to confront these problems, you will have to have some large institutional... You, you cannot do it simply by the market. And I worry how to do, how to do it. That's my first problem. The second... So, ecology, generally. Second problem, I agree here with, uh, with Fukuyama. What is happening today with brain sciences is pretty terrifying. You know, and uh, all are doing, China, United States, and so on, something which has even deep philosophical consequences is happening. Uh, our notion of being a living person, a free self, always implies I'm free in my thinking, I'm here, reality is out there. Now it's already developing a direct connection between our brain and a computer. Well, okay, I think about something, it can happen. Do you know that Stephen Hawking, in the last years, he no longer needed his finger to move. His brain was wired, attached, 
he just thought forward and his wheelchair moved. But it goes also the other way around. So who will do this? How do we control it? And so on. And co this connected with digitalization of our lives. Here I agree with Harari and so on. And it's not just pessimism, but it's simply that something so new is happening. New modes of control and so on and so on. That's why I'm not praising, I'm not crazy Putin. But uh, it's too easy when Americans play now, oh, Putin influenced elections. No, we now know Cambridge Analytica and so on. It's just part of the new forms of control. And you know what I find dangerous in these forms of control? That uh, it's not the old totalitarian control where you are afraid, you know you're controlled. We experience this control as freedom. I sit in front of the TV, I surf. What can be more free than surfing around on the web, choosing what you want? But again, we are manipulated, everything is uh, directed and so on, everything is uh, uh, registered and so on. So my point is not just pessimism. My point is that at least we eat this control. Of course, we should prevent hardcore child pornography, racism, but it should be done in a transparent way that we should, ordinary people, we should know how we are controlled, in what way, and so on. For example, uh, uh, I don't like these stations, but I follow this in United States. Try to go to a big hotel, practically nowhere, you don't get Al Jazeera. You don't get Russia today. Okay, Russia today manipulates, I know. Well, but, but anyway, you could, you could see. Yeah, but uh, like, who decided this? This is what I, all of a sudden, or the one that I definitely don't like, don't misunderstand me, tell us sure. Yeah. First, I don't believe them, you know. But nonetheless, I would like to know... It's they not, exist, I understand. But they have the right to, to exist. No, no, no. Even if you know, I'm even ready to go further. If you think they are spreading lie too much, but we should do it in a public, transparent way. I don't like that I turn on the TV and all of a sudden they are not there. I would like to know the mechanism, who decides it, how, because otherwise the control will be unimaginable. And let me finish with economy. Yeah, please. In yes. the case that the population yeah. saw that. Uh, China grew faster, Chile uh, grew faster yeah. with a dictatorship. Mm -hmm. And people vote for authoritarianism because they felt that the authoritarianism increased economy. Yes, this is, this is a, a possible scenario that the people love. Yeah, no, 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 absolutely. Because they yes. feel that with authoritarianism they will grow better, the, the economy will grow and they will live better in terms of economic. Yeah, but I will go even a step further here, and really a pessimist here. I would say that, uh, in a way I understand the people, I don't like the arrogant leftist reaction when they say, oh, people are manipulated. No, in a way, it's at a certain level, I don't agree with it. A rational decision, my God, in China, they created uh, 300 million or more middle class living relatively well, and so on, and so on. And so, you don't need any deep psychoanalysis 
to understand why they... No? Well, it was the same that United, uh, the Soviet Union, the first 30 years of the Soviet Union, Soviet Union grew a lot. They, they was a great... Yeah, but the cost was horrible, you know. No, well, another cost was horrible. Yeah. But no, but you see, here I disagree with... Let's go into this. And do you follow... You should maybe make an interview with him. This, how should I call them, new rational optimists, like Steven Pinker. Did you read his book, Enlightenment Now, but you read about it? Okay. No, the reason is this, and at the level of most of their statistics, they are right. They say, why always this atmosphere of doom, catastrophe? They said, look, if you look at it statistically, even in the poorest countries, in Africa, things are moving up slowly. For the first time in the history of humanity, we have more obesity, fat is greater problem than hunger, you know, and, uh, and uh, uh, there were never, we all the time talk about terrorism war, but there never were, in spite of what goes on in the Middle East, so little wars, such relative safety as now, and so on, and so on. So, uh, my answer here would be the following one. That this statistic can cheat you, know, at what level? Let's take Jews. If you look at the statistic level, the last hundred years were a triumph for the Jews. In around 1900, anti-Semitism was legitimate. You had, could write whatever against them, they were marginalized, and so on. Today, anti-Semitism is, at least formally, in the free world, prohibited, they have their own state, they are very strong, and so on, and so on. So progress, yes, but in between there was Holocaust, and Holocaust was part of this progress, because without Holocaust, I doubt if there would be the state of Israel. You know, there is, that's my first problem. My second problem is that one, and that's why I think pessimists are right. The situation today, I think, is not the one before World War II, new fascism. It's much closer to the situation between World War One, where the old big imperial power, England, British Empire, was losing its ground, and it was the new multicentric world. And uh, if you look at this Steven Pinker statistic way, you could have said, my God, in around 1900 or 1910, why pessimism? For 50, 60 years, Europe had an unprecedented explosive progress, standard of living, everything exploded. Do we know how many things we got? More or less general health care, education, retirement, getting... Uh, so, why pessimism? Yes, but everybody was right when they were all afraid of the new world war. And it did happen. Who would have guessed in 1910 what will happen just a couple of years later? And undescribable horror. I think we are in that situation. Instead, in of, that, in that, instead of Great Britain, United States, it's losing its dominant role. We are entering a new multicentric world. And although nobody wants war, are we afraid? I looked at some data that everybody is silently preparing like crazy for the war. But in the case, to, to finish the case yes? of authoritarianism, then in your theory, 
people vote authoritarianism, and, and Trump is part of this. Yes, we here I'm a pessimist. I am not an old communist who says, we the party know. No, we don't know. And it's interesting how, uh, let's be fair to communism. At a certain level, it did bring industrialization and so on and so on. But then, and we can locate precisely where, with this new, whatever we call it, digital, postmodern capitalism, new media, communist regimes couldn't deal with it. No, it didn't work. So, uh, uh, so uh, that is uh, that is over. What I am afraid, and again, I'm not saying something revolutionary. My God, Bill Gates, they are all saying the same. Is that capitalism the way it is? I don't think it can. Well, could Sorry. be the same that Marx, uh, the, the, the idea of Marx that the capitalism will destroy itself because the monopoly is a sameness. Today, again, we have a problem of a monopoly because Google, Facebook, yeah, yeah. for example... Ah, it's a very good question that you are asking. My answer will be this one. First, if I am a kind of a Marxist, I am extremely uh, critical of Marx. Did you look, I now published a short introduction to new Communist Manifesto, uh -huh. where I began like, begin like this. I quote one of my old Soviet jokes. You know, that of, not the one that I quote all the time, a different one. The Jew Rabinovich, you know what it was? Radio Erevan, a comical radio station in Russia where you ask questions, you always get an official answer. So the joke is like this. They ask Radio Erevan, is it true that the Jew Rabinovich won a new car on the state lottery? The answer is, in principle it's true, but it wasn't a new car. It was an old bicycle and he didn't win it, it was stolen from him. <laughs> so that's my answer to when they ask, is Marx still true today? I would answer, in principle, yes, but. but. The first big but is that communism, don't underestimate. It did bring general education, help, but ultimately it miserably failed. And that's for me, if you ask me, for example, the true horror of Cuba. Uh, forget about, okay, we shouldn't forget about it, but ultimately, no democracy, terror. Did they really develop some new form of social relations that would bring something new? That's the tragedy. So I would say, uh, uh, and, but the big problem is this one. Marx still saw in tendency the working class as the agent of change, the exploited proletarian. Today, I simply don't think how you can maintain that. To be a classical proletarian, I work in a big company, okay, I'm exploited, but I have permanent health care, retirement and so on, is almost the ideal, the privileged ones can do this. You have now precarious workers, you have now permanently unemployed students who find no job, immigrants and so on and so on. And I don't see here the same revolutionary potential. All my leftist friends, like Alain Badiou and so on, dream that out of this a new revolutionary agent will emerge. I don't. I don't think this is the case. So, with uh, Marxism, uh, uh, Marx still uh, got maybe the best, the most efficient analysis of capitalism, 
but we should recognize the changes which happened. Like another, you hinted at it. Uh, change is that today, are we aware that because of these tendencies to monopoly and so on, yeah. to retain market, you need a very strong state regulation. If you leave the market to itself, it will self-abolish itself. So it's not true that it's big corporation with rules. States, if anything, state mechanisms and so on, are getting stronger and stronger. Second thing that interests me is that the names that you mentioned, the new monopolistic names, Google, Amazon, Facebook, Facebook in a way, they are something that Marx couldn't have predicted. They don't own some big... In my old book, I tried to develop them. Where does the money come, this immense profit? I think... Uh, it's not plants that no, will take it. No, and it's also not... It's not profit, it's rent. What does Microsoft do? We are all in contact with each other. We need a medium, which is our common medium. Bill Gates has, more or less, not quite, a monopoly on debt. So he privatized our commons. What is our common space? Amazon, again, you buy books of book exchange, Facebook, the commons of our private... So it's, and it's not profit. It's wrong to claim... Bill Gates exploits us. No, first he doesn't exploit his workers. He even, I think, paid them relatively well and so on. You don't need no, so much see, work. No, we pay him a rent so that I can communicate with you and so on and so on. It's, a, it's something new which Marx couldn't predict. Marx thought the moment you have commons, profit is over. He couldn't predict this, and this is a big problem, how to deal... But, but, but something, because Marx predicts yeah. the monopoly, the capitalism yeah. will be more injustice, injustice, yeah. injustice, and the capitalism give an answer to correct the monopoly. I think, in my point of view, in 1910, with the antitrust uh, rule yeah. in the United States. But today, with uh, these kind of companies from Silicon Valley, yeah. Yeah. again is creating the idea that the capitalism is, will be, uh, in the future will be a lot of monopolies that will create... But they are again, they are different monopolies, you know. The problem is that these monopolies, in a way, as I already said, <coughs> we experience them as the very space of our freedom. What is our freedom? I buy whatever I want, I communicate with... Ah, to participate in this freedom, you will, and uh, uh, you know what really worries me? Not this monopolies as such, but so the first problem is that we experience this monopolies as the very space of our everyday freedom. Second thing, and here, although he is much criticized, I agree, I think Assange Julian mm -hmm. discovered something. How all this companies like Google. What? Do you know how tightly Google is connected with, with uh, State Department State right? Department and all that and so on? And uh, I'm not saying we can avoid this. I'm not from some pure freedom. I'm just saying we should become aware of in what sense are we controlled and so on and so on. But finally, in a different way, yeah. they take more money from the people 
and they concentrate their needs. As you see the Piketty book from two years mm. ago, they show that the, it's very clear that the society in the last 20 years, the rich are more rich and the poor are more poor. And then or at least even in United States, Germany and so on. Uh, but no, the poor no. remain at the same level in the best case. Yes, yes. Yeah, but you know what I find so problematic and sad? I read Piketty, of course. Excellent and so on. But then when he addresses the problem what to do, well, he, he becomes a utopian. He admits that capitalism is the only system that really works. So basically he wants the system the way it is with higher taxes and so on. But I claim to do this with the progressives should already win and win worldwide. Because the yes. measures that he proposed will work only if you apply them at least in the most countries of the world. Otherwise capital will escape there and so So you see, this is the, uh, the same problem I'm talking all the time. We see the problem, but what the is the feasible solution? How to do it? But we will have to invent something, otherwise, again, I worry. We have this, what you call, monopolies, the new form of monopolized commons, ecology, biogenetics. Try, try to imagine that. In the beginning of the last century, the capitalism was so injusted that it created communism. Yeah. Today, couldn't create communism and create the injustice of the capitalism is creating authoritarianism. Then the authoritarianism is a result of the incapacity of the capitalism that again control themselves. Again, the capitalism, like at the beginning of the yeah, yeah, century, yeah, yeah. is going to monopoly. Yeah, but didn't something similar happen, not at the same extent? Uh, don't forget that in, uh, after World War One. Well, because it's Ca fascism also emerged and monopoly and so on. And, uh, oh, sorry, no, no, I will, please take it, I will not get uh, So, uh, my point is that uh, I like to quote that Frankfurt School companion, Walter Benjamin, who says every fascism is a sign of a failed revolution. Yeah. I still think that we will have to come. I'm not talking about abolishing capitalism with some communal with some common property. Old models of communism simply don't function. But uh, I'm very much of a pessimist with how to uh, with uh, how to again how to if we don't find a third way, not the Tony Blair third way. But the third way between liberal capitalism and these fascist reactions to, to it, we are lost, I claim. And here I believe in Hollywood. <laughs> you know, all these blockbusters, uh, Hunger Games and so on. We are even obsessed by what to do. Of course, I don't believe in classic revolution and so on. That's crazy. I, uh, Maybe. I'm just playing with ideas. I don't know enough economically, but what do you think about uh, with title financial controls? I don't know what can be done there. I know that where they did it, it can work. For example, why did... Okay, because of the authoritarian structure, but nonetheless, what did they do? Look at the 2008 crisis. Why did China survive it? pretty well, because 
they were able immediately, because they had an authoritarian state, to impose financial control and so on, all that. Maybe this could be the first step. Somehow to... Re and you don't infringe on economic freedoms here, etc., etc. But, but try to return to the idea that you have, that today there is a situation very similar to first World War. World War, before it, yeah. And the same happened with the, with the monopolies. Because we are talking about the political situation yeah. that is, there is one, there is no one uh, country that yeah. can yeah. dominate the rest. Yeah. But at the same time, the uh, the situation is similar to the beginning of the last century in terms of the capitalism, because this kind of monopoly is increasing the earnings of the big companies yes. and decreasing the earnings of the middle class. The middle class is going down. The answer is Trump. The answer. Yes, absolutely well, agree. But, yes. but finally, we will need a third way between the authoritarian and, and that's the, the tragedy. We see, you know, uh, in uh, we are at the opposite situation of the classical communists. Who, you know, I remember even when I was young, there was relative where sixties, at least in Europe, welfare state, but communists were saying no, the system is rotten, and they proposed a model what to do. So that, you know, that was the whole artifice of the new left. Even if you were living relatively well, they were saying, no, but you are alienated horror. Today is the opposite situation. There is crisis antagonism, but the left doesn't have an answer. Which is why they escape into moralism more and more. I see political correctness, all this obsession with how you talk, gay rights even. I'm for gay rights, whatever you want. But don't you think that this, that this moralization just marks... Uh, uh, Finally, we have authoritarianism. In the beginning of the last yeah. century, with authoritarianism from the left. That is uh, yeah, yeah, the yeah. communism. Yeah. And today is authoritarianism from the right. But finally, the answer to the, the, yeah. the democratic liberal system is authoritarianism. Yeah, but is this the only answer? Because then we can close the store, no? Yeah. I still believe in miracles here. You never know. Something can happen here and there. I see small signs of hope. I don't think the situation is so clear, but I agree with you at some point. I wouldn't put it in this deterministic way. But I agree with you that if nothing happens, if somehow there is not an awakening, then yes, the most logical, if we extrapolate the situation now, is a worldwide, not centralized authoritarianism, but like a combination of local authoritarianism, which perfectly functions in global world market. The local authoritarianism also can be an answer for the people to afraid to the globalization. Absolutely. But you know uh, what... Uh, 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 was the same that the first... Yeah, but do you agree with something else? This is today the big split among, even in Europe now, the left. Uh, there are two myths of the left with which I don't agree. The first myth is that capitalism is global, so the end, only way to control the excessive of capitalism is strong nation-state. I think this is the dream. You cannot do it at this level. And they all have this idea, the link, the leftist in Germany, uh, even those who opposed Syriza's compromise in Greece, radical leftists claim, uh, we do Grexit, we print our own money, we... No, this is suicidal, I think. Look, take, look at Greece. 
they are so much part of European economy. They import most of the food, products, everything. So you cannot do it in this way. By the second thing I don't agree with is all this. That's why that guy, where is he from? Brazil or Canada? You know, Walter Mignolo. No. Oh, okay. Mignolo. He is relatively famous for advocating this idea that Yes, capitalism is bad, but not communism, but his idea is some kind of uh, 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 that we should return to old local traditions of ancient wisdoms, Latin America, Africa, that as a resistance. I absolutely don't agree with that. Like I have even some Latino American friends who claim they can get like crazy. One tried to convince you that there is some tribe in Upper Amazonia who has some wonderful model to resist capitalism and so on. No, I still believe as a good old Marxist here with Marxist basic insight that capitalism is the condition of freedom in the sense of uh, we cannot resist capitalism by returning to some old, more authoritarian, but more organic traditions. You know, all these ideas of, in Latin America. But this was even the idea of Sendero Luminoso, well, some kind of Inca ancient revival. No, capitalism, capitalist destruction of old traditional hierarchic forms, we have to go through it. It's a condition of freedom. No way back from there. That's why, but now they're in crisis. This is what I like with Mandela. He never played this game of we should return to our African traditions or whatever bullshit. Modern egalitarianism is the big legacy of capitalism. We have to go through it. I don't believe in this local resistances. We will create our... No, this is the... That's why I hated the film. Did you see? It's an interesting ideological point. Did you see Black Panther? Yeah. Yeah, this idea of some ancient traditions and so on. And I always tell to my friends, but did you notice that even at the end, who is at the king's side when he speaks to United Nations? The CIA agent and so on, you know? No, I totally disagree with this idea of returning to some pre-modern, primordial wisdom. But they all... This, this, is the fascist, this is the fascist formula. Look, that's why in China they are now rehabilitating Confucianism and so on. I, I think this is the fascist temptation. Fascism means, as they say in English, uh, you want to have your cake and eat it. No? The problem of fascism from the beginning, and this is not in itself evil, was how to have modernity, but prevent its destructive, socially disruptive effects. In this sense, the Pope, yeah. is, uh, because he is against the capitalism, mm -hmm. but, he's against yeah, the capital yeah. Yeah. but against the capitalism with all ideas could be that he represents the culture of the uh, 20th century, he couldn't understand the answer of the problem of the capitalism of today. Yes, I, I think, that because, you know, with all my respect for the Pope, he at least looked to, although he's ambiguous, ad admitted all this uh, uh, horror abuse of children, his positive yeah. attitude towards immigrants, all that and so on. But nonetheless, you know, 
It's easy to be an honest, ethically person at this general level. But I'm tired of these honest people who say, yeah, but what's his proposal? Do you get it? What? I'm more brutal here. Okay, okay, we all agree. Horrors happen and so on and well, so in on. In, in terms of economy yeah. and politics, uh, the idea in Argentina is the Pope, the Pope uh, Francisco is also Peronist. It's like uh, the idea like Trump that we have one Peronist in the United States and one Peronist in the Vatican. Formally, uh, uh, Pope Francis, Francis is a Peronist. He was part of the Peronism in, in Argentina when he was a cardinal. At the okay, Vatican. I wouldn't blame him, I don't know, for that. But again, what does Peronism mean here? Does it mean anything more than the, the, the last years of Christina Kirchner? When you have, okay, some populist measure, but all confused in corruption and so on and so on, relative inefficiency and so on. You know, uh, for me, the problem is extremely serious. Again, we are confronting incredible problems. Economically, we are approaching totalitarianism. Do people, people think, I joke when I say, look at China. China is not a model for me. China is a preview of horrors awaiting us. Every Democrat today should be on the edge of suicide, of being an authoritarian regime, beating capitalists at their own game. And that's, for me, the big problem. I don't see a clear solution. Just, I believe in, this will sound horrible, but I believe in miracles, not religiously, but let's say Syriza was a miracle. Who would have expected? It was for the first, Syriza is for me a symptom of where we are. On the one hand, it was a miracle. Who would have expected a radical left party to win in totally fair elections and so on? But immediately, this was a symptom of where we are. After winning, they had to precisely adopt measures which were all that they were fighting for all the time before. And when my friends say, oh, they betrayed their cause, I say formally, yes, but the problem was real. I spoke with Varoufakis. Mm -hmm. He was even against this compromise. He thought, I hope he was right, I don't know, a third way is possible. He saw it correctly. He told me, on the one hand, with the, the pressure from European Union. On the other hand, we have these crazy Grexit plans. And his view, and I'm convinced by him, was that if radical left were to take over, and they would do Grexit, uh, break with European Union, print money, national capitalism, state control, well, for the first two, three years, the living standard would have dropped at least for another 30%. There would be probably hunger and so on, a nightmare. So, you see, we are always encountering this problem of it's easy for a democratic leftist to take over, but then you hit bottom. When you approach, uh, it's in South Africa, it's the same. Yeah, sorry. We have to, yeah. Let me ask about... One thing that you, re that you recently uh, write is uh, the Marx wrote that religion was the opium of the people. Mm -hmm. The new opium of the people is drug. 
No, 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 you know what was my irony? Maybe it got lost in translations. Uh, uh, no, first, I don't think that today religion is mainly the opium of the people. I think that today religion, a certain version, can play a very progressive role and so on and so on. My irony was this one, that there are today's two opiums of the people, which are, what, opium and people. <laughs> On the one hand, we have opium, and uh, I read some books, wonderful analysis, of how in, in the West, I don't know how it is in Argentina, but most of the countries where I move, you know, this is no longer a marginal phenomenon. According to some statistics in the United States, in American academia, universities, and so on. 70 to 80% people of people are on some kind of drugs. Prozac, Xanax, whatever. We simply have to rely on that to, to function normally. And uh, I like this irony of how this functions. On the one hand, when you are overexcited, you take drugs, Xanax, to calm you down. But then you get depressed and take against drug to revitalize you and so on. We are in it. We rely on it. Second thing, isn't uh, populism precisely ideological opium for the people? It's the only way to introduce passion today that works. You have here and there left Podemos, uh, Syriza, okay, Occupy Wall Street, but, but uh, basically more and more the big opposition and Democrats are losing in Western Europe is this cold Brussels bureaucracy, economic rationalism without passion, and passion means populism and so on and so on. In this sense, that's my joke, that again, opium of the people is today opium and the people, you know. The people-like population. The, the, the people. Yeah, 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 yeah. People itself, which is the opium or the fetish of of, of, of a political fetish today. So the, fe the feminism was the current revolution? No! No, it's even... Oh my God, how many feminists take me for this? When I say... Uh, of course, I... Basically, I admire and agree with uh, me too. Because it's really... Something is radically changing. Maybe what was the model of the relations between men and women for thousands of years is weakened, it developed. But at the same time, uh, this uh, excessive moralization and legalization expressions we use and so on and so on, I find this precisely a strategy to prevent a more radical leftist politicization. I, I think it's typical in the United States, if, if you look at it, uh, how many uh, radical feminists are already attacking Bernie Sanders for being white, male, and so on and so on. So I think it is crucial to retain a critical eye on, on Me Too, or generally this new movement of transgenderism and so on and so on. I support its basic goals. But I think the way it is done, it's also that, uh, you know what worries me at a more even philosophical level? There are so many uh, secret hierarchies in it. For example, Me Too 
uh, is always describing a certain scene of male violence, like uh, the way men become women, rape them and so on. But they always talk about a certain, although they would not admit it, situation, which is one night stands. I go to a place, am I picked up, will I be raped and so on and so on. This is, but what about? They very, they don't talk about it, at least publicly, in the Greek media a lot. The much more tragic aspect is for me this everyday suffering of ordinary women, where you are no longer attractive and so on. Uh, this is not attractive, it's much more attractive to talk about a beautiful young star, was she raped by a producer or not, and so on and so on, but... The real suffering, massive of women. Second thing that I don't agree, I think you asked me one of yes. the questions, is this reproach of objectivization. Mm -hmm. No, objectivizing us. Uh, wait a minute, I don't like this term as a bad word, objectivization. Objectivation means a man is with desire observing you as a sexual object. Well, this is part of erotics, I'm sorry. And many women try to objectivize themselves. They make themselves attractive and so on and so on. I don't like this term automatically as a bad term. The point is the freedom of objectivization. What is wrong with a woman who wants to be attractive, who even, I don't care, wants to be promiscuous and seduce men and so on and so on. So, uh, here, this radical Me Too, which protests objectivization, uh, totally, in a way, totally misses, totally misses the point. There is, uh, okay, I put it like this. Yes, true, women were subordinated and so on and so on. But there is, and many feminists wrote about it, in, at least in the West, in other countries it's better, the predominant form of Me Too, is simply a logic of revenge. We will now make the man pay back, and if you are accused of something, you are already treated as guilty, no matter what you say, and so on and so on. It's a certain logic of revenge and of formal guilt. There is always a suspicion that if you are trying to seduce a woman, you are a priori guilty in some sense. The moment you are accused, the only... And this logic, this, this will end very badly, I think. No, I'm for real freedom, which includes freedom of women and men to objectivize themselves, if by objectivizing, this is so ridiculous, they claim I shouldn't be reduced to sexual object. My God, listen, let's say, and you have a full right to be this, you are a woman who wants to seduce a man. You try to be just attractive. What will you tell your man? No, I want you to appreciate me also as a person and so on. That's ridiculous in an erotic game and so on. Let me answer now. The current market where millennials are the standards. Is the anti-Dipus war? We are... Uh, the, the, the I never trusted too easily this idea of... We are uh, uh, outside Oedipus and so on and so on. Because if Oedipus means that our relation to the world is mediated by some symbolic medium, mm -hmm. isn't uh, internet 
the most edible structure that you can imagine. Instead of direct life, directly being with you, everything is mediated. And that's the essence of Oedipus, that your desire is, okay, in classical Oedipus it is paternal authority, but now, can you, okay, I'll put it like this, can you imagine, in this sense, anything more Oedipal than internet dating? Well, you are not even yourself, you are totally alienating in how you present yourself in the media. <coughs> And, uh, and did I, did, do you know my story which I wrote? It's my favorite story. That's, I think, my point that we are approaching. Do you know my story about those masturbatory devices, how they function? Oh, no, I must tell you, this is my biggest joke of the last year. The Guardian magazine asked me, is romance still alive here? What to do? And I, my proposal was this one. You know, it's typical how today we rely more and more on these gadgets. You not only have these plastic penises, dildo or what you call them, you have now also the counterpart, you know. I don't know how they call them, some horrible names, but it's a plastic vagina. Yes. It's on a battery and it's technically very nice. I saw one because you can regulate how strongly it squeezes you, how you can put, it's like a tube, different openings on it, vagina, asshole, mouth, whatever. And my ideal date today would have been this one. I'm flirting with a lady and we said, okay, we meet for sex tomorrow. I come with my plastic vagina, she comes with her plastic penis, we include the batteries and we push her penis plastic into my vagina and the machine is there buzzing, it enjoys for us. And we can have a nice cup of tea and do nothing <laughs> and so on. We are really uh, approaching this radically mediated time because this connects with another moment, element, which I think it's crucial. Ah, first point I want to make here is that people usually describe our era as radically uh, uh, hedonist. No, our hedonism is tightly controlled. The true hedonism, which would have been, I do it even if I drop that, they are presented as ultimate horrors, smoking, uh, pedophilia, alcoholism, drugs, and so on. I, I mean, we are always censoring our pleasures, like, I always use this joke, like coffee without caffeine, sausage without fat, Coca-Cola without, you want the element but censored of its uh, element. So, uh, uh, I don't think we first that we live in real radical hedonism. It's a very tightly, uh, tightly controlled hedonism. The second thing, it's crucial for how not only our pleasures, but our beliefs function. I often develop this idea. You must know that one, the story about Niels Bohr, you know that one that I yeah. quote often, uh, that about how horseshoe and so on. And his formula is, you know, when Bohr answered to his friend, why do you have a horseshoe above your entrance? He says, it's superstition. I don't believe in it, but I was told it functions even if you don't believe in it. That's how ideology functions today. We live in a cynical era. We, uh, you don't have to believe for something to function. 
Like today, most people are cynical. They say, of course, democracy is uh, democracy. Justice is a cynical era. It's a cynical era. Yes, I think we live in a very cynical era where it's not. Here, I turned around Marx following Peter Sloterdijk. It's our formula today is not. Is not no. Our formula today is not. Marxist form of ideology, they don't know what they are doing it, but they are doing it. So that I proposed an opposite formula. We know very well what we are doing, but we are still doing it. You know, That's a, this is what is also so new about Trump. He practically admits he is lying, but he is still lying. We are accepting it and so on and so on. It, uh, and this is, uh, this is where, again, I see the actuality of Marx, because when Marx talks about commodity fetishism, mm -hmm. he doesn't claim this is an illusion. He claims we know very well that there is nothing magic in money commodity, but we still act as if we believe in its magic. So this is a wonderful idea of Marx, which is today actual more than ever, of an illusion, which is not our subjective illusion, like things are like this, but I live in dreams. No, I know how things are, but I but enact in my dreams. Illusion is in what I do socially, not in my... And this is something at all levels of our life. Take ecology. We know very well the catastrophe is possible, but we act as if we don't really believe it. We know, but we act as if we don't know. And this is something which is very difficult to fight, because as long as you are dealing with illusions, you can convince people, you know, you can yes. deal with them, but, but now today people will admit, of course, I'm not an idiot, I know it's all a lie. Eh, 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 what do you do then, you know? It's uh, very difficult to criticize ideology today, because, again, people know what they are doing. You cannot shock them. This is where maybe this that's why there is a problem with the true. The true is not more important. Uh, Although there I have another problem. Uh, I know all this fake news and so on. Yes, it is a problem. But uh, here uh, again, Harari wrote a good essay. Mm -hmm. Now I read it in Guardian, an excerpt where he says that. Uh, you know, we shouldn't idealize the past. Look at the 50s. Wasn't communist propaganda one big fake news? Wasn't up to a point even American? I mean, the point was only that these were just two, three big competing narratives. And today it just gets dispersed. Everybody can do it, but do not idealize the but, past. But this, this, um this narrative, these two mm. narratives that dominated the, the, the yeah. 20th century, people believe in that. The difference is today they don't need to believe to act like And this. here I'm a little bit more skeptical mm -hmm. because, okay, this would be very complicated theory. You know, uh, don't misjudge what people really believe. The French historian Paul Vein, V-E-Y-N-E, wrote a wonderful book called Did Ancient Greeks Believe in Their Myths? Like a very simple question. 
Were ancient Greeks really so stupid to think that if you climb the mountain of Olympus, you will see God there? And he proved exclusively, no, they of course didn't believe it. You know, it was just a form of politeness, of rhetoric, like, for example, when I meet to be, a friend... To be together, to be together, to... to, to yeah, share, to yeah, share yeah, yeah, and you know it's not true. In this sense, I wouldn't be too sure uh, what people believed. If anything, maybe, because, for example, when people said in the past, I believe in God, I would doubt very much how they really believe it, meant it. No, no, they were not lying. But as you said, it was a form of social trust to believe in God means, yes, I'm part of this community and so on and so on. So, uh, today, maybe... Uh, Maybe, in some sense, we believe even more, in what sense? You know, Umberto Eco mm -hmm. wrote a very good essay where he says that it's typical of postmodernism to qualify all statements. You don't say to a beloved man or woman, I love you, but I love you as a poet would have said, of I maybe could say, you know, you are afraid to state it directly. But Eco says, but pre-modern people also didn't believe it literally. Just for them, it was not necessary to add these qualifications. When you said to somebody, I love you, all these, these distanciations were already included into it, you know. They were not naive. If anything, we are more naive today. That's why, for me, Strictly, the other part of this universal cynicism is the race of this naive fundamentalism. And in a way, I admire them. This is what always fascinates me. American fundamentalists, one would expect them to be stupid, you know. But no, but they are very scientifically developed and so on. For example, I debated once with one of them. And we had a debate on... Uh, this, how to call it, Turing shroud, you know, that with those blood stains, the idea is, is this maybe the blood of Christ, you know. And the church is, of course, afraid here, because now, with DNA, if you analyze those stains, what if we can discover the DNA of Jesus Christ? And then it's over this game, God's Son. What you discover that that his father was some, sorry to be vulgar, uh, Egyptian slave fucking Mary or whatever, you know. But uh, another thing is important. Uh, I debated with them and they are totally, they said, yes, we yeah, should right. do the DNA and they know the answer, they claim. Because God doesn't have a DNA, it will be Mary's DNA redoubled, you know. It's, it's, uh, what they miss is this, uh, like, uh, in some sense, I think American Christian fundamentalists are not even true believers. For them, be religious statements or belief are simple facts. They treat it as just another... It's just a language, it's a form of communication. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. like social... Uh... Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think uh, we should really go into... Uh, all this more deeply, we don't have time now, because again, when people say belief, radical belief, fundamentalist, I always like to ask 
But what do you mean by belief? What does it mean to believe in something? Often, the condition to believe in something is to make fun of it. I don't know how it is Argentina, but here, the usual form of patriotism is that among friends, you always make fun of your country. But, ah, if a foreigner makes fun of you, then all of a sudden... But so, it's as if you are ashamed to directly, you know. Or, I always have this joke with my Israeli friends, no? Because, do you know that Israel is, according to some statistics, the most atheist nation in the world? Over 50% of Jews don't really believe in God. So I tell them, okay, for you God doesn't exist, but nonetheless he gave you the land of Israel, and so on, you know. This is, and Jews are not here uh, uh, specific. For example, I was so deeply shocked, I quote him in some of my books, now that Croatia is really almost openly Croatia, the other republic, yeah. rehabilitating fascism, mm -hmm. and Catholicism plays a key role. But they strictly reduce Catholicism to a uh, an instrument of nation's self-affirmation. As one of their theologists said, if you are not a Catholic, you cannot be really a Croat. And then he went a step further, it's terrifying, and he said, it doesn't even mean that you have really to believe in God. To say this and in this sense you strengthen the Catholic and so on. And so enough. I think that another, this is a very good argument, Alain, but you develop it well. That The problem with today's fundamentalism is not that it's too fanatically religious. It's just, it's not even authentic religious belief. It's just some kind of, a, as you would have put it, language game as an instrument of power. And even in some sense, you know who said this nicely? Khomeini. He was not an idiot, I read his text. Well, he said, uh, Islam is political or it's nothing. And then, in some text, he quoted uh, uh, Quran, where there is a very interesting statement, I like it, where uh, Mohammed says, if people believe in not or God, that's their private problem. We cannot control them there. No. All we can do is to control how they act publicly. They have to act as if they believe, and so on and so on. You know? So again, we should be very careful today to avoid this image. Fanatics, fundamentalists. No, no, no. You have to be very precise in what does it mean to authentically believe. This is why the greatest theologist, like the Danish one, Kierkegaard, well aware that authentic belief always has to be on the edge of disbelief. Like, probably there is no God, but I'm crazy enough to say I risk on it. All this uh, complacent belief, just follow the ritual. This is why what I was so fascinated by, I've written a lot about it. I think these are the best examples of how ideology today works. When I was asked once, what's the greatest contribution of American culture to world civilization, my answer was immediate. Canned laughter, you know what is this, on their TV, this comical series, you hear laughter is part of the soundtrack. And I like this, because it means you don't even have to laugh. You look at it, the screen laughs for you, and it works, at least with me. After 
seeing, uh, watching a comical series, I feel relaxed as if I laughed. And I think this is crucial for how things function today in our cynical era. You don't have to believe, you even don't have to laugh, you can enjoy through others, you can do everything uh, through others. And what will be the end, I don't know. Sorry, I talk too much. No, no, no. It's about the, the millennials. Uh, I never knew what does it mean. For some people, it's people born in 2000. For others, are people who reached maturity. Less, less than 75 years. More ah, less, less yeah, yeah, yeah. I was told, yeah. What do you think about that today? The youngest, all the advertising, all the market is focused on the younger. There is any relationship between the technology that the youngers are more uh, efficient with the technology and there is the idea that technology is changing all and the old people is less useful than 50 years ago which is the relation with the youngers uh, in terms of how they change the politics and the... Uh, you know what, uh, of course me being now unfortunately the older one I don't <laughs> like to... But what fascinates me in my new book, there will be a chapter on it. This, uh, how this being uh, totally immersed into digital space, mm -hmm. no? Here I have a couple of maybe interesting points to make. Uh, how uh, a certain logic, which was already described in psychoanalysis, which we encounter in horror movies, in video, it interests me very much. This logic where you no longer conceive yourself as a mortal being, but in a sense as undead, you know. You die, you come back again, you are indestructible. And uh, the first time this was developed, as far as I know, was in Marquis de Sade. As Lacan pointed out, look at uh, 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 Juliette. She's tortured terribly, but in the next scene she comes again back with all her beauty and so on. Isn't it the same with... Uh, then I noticed with cartoons, Tom and Jerry and so on. Yeah. It's the same crazy world. In one scene, uh, Tom or Jerry are cut into pieces, run over by a truck. In the next scene they are here again. But this is in a way the universe of digital games and so on. And it's not just technology, of course, in a game you can start it all. It's, isn't this also the Gnostic dream of our digital era? To become like a software program and you cannot die, you just download yourself again and again, you can reincarnate yourself again and again, and this, I think, it's not just an illusion. It is a mode of existence which I'm not ready simply to condemn. But Isn't it very interesting? Is, this if, that we, if we return at the, your idea that some situations of today are very similar to the beginning of the last century. Yeah. Uh, one of the differences was the beginning of the last century was women that doesn't exist like a power yeah, yeah. Uh, 100 years yeah. ago. And the, the teenagers, because uh, at the beginning of the last century, at 13 years, you go to work. The, mm -hmm. This was an invention of the 20th century, the power of the woman and the power of the youngest people. How this change the world of the century? I think it's another one. Uh, Alain Badiou, in a short book, mm -hmm. made a very good uh, distinction. He said that this is a very general observation that till 
our postmodern era, 68 revolution after, uh, for men, there was still some kind of, a, how should I call it, ritual of initiation to become a full adult member of society. This could be getting the first job, finishing your university education, or in many countries, your military service, whatever, but this means you are fully an adult. But that now, with all this idea of uh, permanently young and at the same time all the time permanent education and so on, we men are changing into permanent adolescents. And he pointed out very nicely how even somebody like Donald Trump, he doesn't behave as a mature person. <laughs> he is a permanent adolescent. At the same time, and that's very nice observation by you, women are treated as more and more as more mature. Men forever remain young. Women, already young women, are expected to act in a much more adult way. You know where you can see, uh, register this? I don't know if it's Argentina, but in France I know it's true. When you have problems with adolescents, the police women, social workers, judges, they are mostly women. The idea is that women have more tact, maturity to do this. And I think... That's that the same, and, and justice, uh, the increases of the woman in justice is amazing. Yeah. A lot of justice woman is on the important part. But it's also, what I don't like in this is this psychologization of justice, is that, you know, a judge should only understand you, your motives, and this is for me nonetheless another form of social control and so on. But uh, what I'm saying here is that, again, I don't want to be a catastrophist and saying that's the end and so on. But nonetheless, again, if we put all this together, what happens at this level of, uh, of uh, uh, changes in this basic uh, uh, family patterns and, and so on, something tremendous is happening because children are at the same time treated as totally immature, which is why the greatest crime almost that you can imagine today is pedophilia. And many of my psychoanalytic friends noticed how in this way our era, which is allegedly permissive, you can do whatever you want, returned back from Freud. You don't talk about uh, child se children's sexuality today. And, uh, children are innocent, but at the same time, as they are innocent, not yet corrupted by sexuality, at the same time, they are... At, uh, and here even, sorry, at this level, I even find this... I don't agree with it. I'm all for this, against this horror. Did you follow this story? And I don't get it, that Italian actress who is now written Asia, Asia Argenta. Ah, yes. The accusation, no? Yeah. Okay. I will tell you something terrifying, no? But if I were to be 17, and if a nice woman like her mature would do this, that what she did allegedly to him, to me, well, I wouldn't protest too much. <laughs> so why is this experience, maybe it was in that case and so on. But isn't it clear, I'm not simply on her side, that's another thing, but... 
First, the fact that he wanted four millions and so on, and all the stuff that this traumatized here. I find this a very exploitative move from his side. But on the other hand, when you are 17, you usually are already sexually awakened and so on. What is so horrible about a beautiful woman seducing you? I find it totally, it's again this idea, innocent boy uh, seduced, I find this horrifying. Look, I will tell you something very vulgar. I don't like Macron too much. But on the other hand, isn't he the one who realized the dream of us all when you are in high school and you have a beautiful teacher there? Isn't the ultimate dream to be seduced by her? And he did it and now... So, uh, this... Uh, there is, I think, uh, a big confusion here. Because, as to quote Gramsci, we all know it, that famous quote, when the old is dying but the new didn't yet arrive, this is dangerous era where monsters arise and so on and so on. I think we are exactly in such an era, and we pay the price of these paradoxes. Look in sexuality. On the one hand, we are in a permissive era. You can be gay, you can be trisexual, whatever you want. On the other hand, you have to be very careful, politically correct, what you do. How this ultra-permissivity is combined with ultra-tight control. You are terrorized almost all the time. Did I... Because you know what's the problem for me with political... And again, I deeply sympathize. I'm totally for women. I'm a crazy guy here. I'm even for death penalty against rapists. That's not my problem. My problem is this one. And I always got... When I get in a debate with politically correct people... Here go. Let's be frank. In an erotic interplay, there always is a problem, a moment... When somebody has to break the ice and do a gesture of passing from this implicit erotic games to explicit move, which these gestures, if it's rejected, can be proclaimed harassment. You cannot avoid this. You know, uh, what I reproach all those Me Too and political is that they have a certain they underestimate the extent to which even brutality is part of sexual game, not brutality in the sense that I brutally rape, but in the sense that a certain rough approach, you cannot control it, can itself be eroticized. Or when they say that man seduced a woman, it wasn't him, it was just because he was a person of power. Yes, but I'm sorry, power itself can be eroticized and so on. I mean, uh, don't, don't you have sometimes the impression that... Uh, Hypocrisy. Yeah, that politically correct people dream of some pure innocent sex where nobody humiliates the other, it's just the mutual agreement and so on and so on. This is not sex. It doesn't... Ah, now I have an intelligent friend who gave me the formula, who told me the only sex which functions like that is the sadomasochist contractual sex. And that's the secret model today. It's 
We are attracted, so we sit down, we sign a contract, the masochist contract, you do this to me, I do this to you. So no wonder, I find this totally logical that today, in some political correct circles, in, in Sweden, now ah, how sex is more and more becoming contractualized. Do you know that in Australia now, did you read this, they passed a law that Okay, how do you control it? It's nonsense. Yeah, yeah. That before two people go into bed, they must look into each other and both publicly state, yes, I want to do it. Well, I find this a little bit unpractical because I was in this situation quite often. You know, a woman or a man who terribly wants to do it may find this humiliating and... Uh, you know, to declare it in this way. And do you know that they are already circulating now these sexual contracts, like we want to go to bed, okay, we fill in the form, my name, your name, birth, religion, so that you don't lie to her, then uh, do you have any AIDS or sexual weakness? And they even already have forms where they specify no anal penetration or whatever you said, the limits, but, uh, 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 again, what hurts me here is that the ideal that how this uh, sadomasochist contract is, and that's the result of all this, me too, is silently promoted as a norm. And then there is another madness of political correctness. I'm not joking here. They're very interesting. I've written a short text on them. Do you know? They are marginal, a couple of hundred thousands, but they are crucial as a phenomenon of madness. Uh, do you know incel, who are incels? No. Oh, you should. Involuntary celibates. It's a movement of not massive, but hundreds. Uh, they are ugly, fat usually, ugly white men, who are usually all right for hierarchy and so on, but not in sex. They feel underprivileged because they claim all uh, only beautiful men get women, we are underprivileged. And they try to change the game so that they publicly enjoy their ugliness. But you know what's the madness? You know what's their ideology? Although they are officially ultra hierarchic for inequality, they demand that in sex, state or society should somehow regulate it that everybody gets a woman. And it's a mass movement. What I find it so crazy is that in a way they are bringing the politically correct logic to the end. Okay, I agree with this affirmative action in the case of race and so on and women, but now you know that when I was the last time in Texas they told me there already is our movement, and in one of two universities they enacted it. First, an ugly guy started a movement claiming that ugly people are underprivileged. So, he wants, uh, uh, yes, affirmative action for... Uh, then, in one or two Texas colleges, they already did affirmative action for stupidity, claiming it's because of my education and genes that I'm stupid, so it's not fair for me to be measured by the same standards, and they enacted it.
If I'm your professor and you prove me that you have diminished mental capacities, I shouldn't grade you in the same way and so on and so on. I mean, there is, there is a dangerous limit here. And I, I, it, it, uh, because, uh, you know, at the end, mm -hmm. I claim, okay, I'm for social justice and so on. But we have to accept, don't you think, that sex is basically unjust? Yes, some people are much nicer than others. They have a privilege and it's madness to regulate this. Sex is extremely unjust in this level. And if you try to regulate it, it has to end as a catastrophe. Interesting. Let me again go with the youngers. Yes. I think that uh, <coughs> the figure of a young person has more power today than 50 years ago. Do you have the same idea? Youngers are more powerful today than... Well, first I would like to look at where, how do you locate power? In, in example, media, in media, in... For example, you, you put media, I think that your association is very good because, uh, for example, Google, Facebook, the people that work in this kind of company, in the uh, majority are millennials, for example. The idea that the millennials understand... The, the millennials are uh, internet native. Yeah. The revolution that the internet produced uh, create um, uh, disruption, yeah, yeah. all the olds are out of yeah. the new Okay, world. on the one hand, maybe I'm here an old age conservative. Mm -hmm. Let me tell you my dream. Let's imagine my Stalinist dream, I'm a dictator of a country. Yeah. Personally, as a person. Mm -hmm. The first thing I would have done is to prohibit Facebook and Twitter, and if you, if you are caught for more than, I don't know, quarter of an hour per day on Twitter, you are mobilized and you have to clean toilets for dinner. <laughs> I, I think this is a terrifying loss of time. You know why? Uh, because what interests me, and good analysis were made here, how this type of communication, Twitter is for me the model. Twitter is like this horrible talk shows or CNN and so on, where you cannot talk for more than 20 seconds or whatever, and every argumentation gets lost, it's just these quick, witty, short remarks, and so on. So, I do feel, uh, I do feel like that. What worries me is, but I'm precisely trying not just to see the bad side. Look, for example, uh, copying the movies from Pirate Bay, from I don't know where, YouTube. You know what I decided? I wonder if you have the same experience. The result is that I see less movies than ever. I want to see a movie, don't say, oh, I don't have time to do it, so I will copy it, and then I will have time to do it, I can see it whatever I want, which means that I never see it, because I always tell myself I can do it <laughs> wherever I want, you know. So this is uh, 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 the pattern in this one, precisely because I can do something whenever I want, I don't do it. And I notice even how operas, movies, you know, I'm tired, I begin to watch it, I say, oh, not now, I will do it later, and so on, how it radically fragments <laughs> our experience. That's why I also don't like to read books on Kindle and so on and so on. Something radically changes in the very 
mode of uh, experience, which is why I noticed how even among philosophers there is less and less of writing substantial books. If if you write a substantial book, it must be some popularization, introduction, and so on and so on. And uh, I remain here an uh, old conservative. I believe then more than ever today, to quote Lenin, we should learn, learn, and learn. We should take a step back and reflect what is happening. So here I remain faithful to the to the old uh, generation. On the other hand, I'm not ready to just dismiss in this way the new media. Look, even events like the Arab Spring, as we know, Syriza, Podemos was a media phenomenon first in Spain. Well, uh, you can say that at the beginning, Trump also came from television because he did a show in television. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah, uh, but, yeah, but, uh, but even, uh, it's interesting to see how internet was developed. You know how internet, uh, I read in the history of it, how internet exploded. In United States Army, you thinking about what if there is an atomic war and the centers of power are destroyed. So how to laterally connect those who survive. So in this sense, internet that it's more lateral, democratic, decentralized. And that's why the big struggle today is how to control it, you know. And, uh, sorry, just to improvise on this, it's especially, what I especially hate is how this control not only works in a non-transparent way, but to achieve certain political goals, it presents itself as pure moralism. For example, do you remember a couple of years ago that famous Napalm girl image disappeared for a couple of days from Facebook and the justification was it can be child pornography. Nonsense. They were embarrassed because this was an iconic... Uh, and in Russia, did you follow it? Now, the same happened now. Uh, somewhere in mid-Russia, uh, a kindergarten teacher uh, recorded a horrible scene in a summer camp. How? Teachers were literally torturing a young boy. And he posted, she posted this on the internet. It was not only censored, but she was put to prison. The idea was she was spreading violent child pornography on the media. And the woman was just desperate because she showed this video to authorities and they all ignored it. So out of despair, she said, but this is horrible. They're literally torturing children. No? So what do these two cases have in common? How? You mask political censorship as care for morality. The same happened to me when I was telling at a conference a story about, a horrible story about rape, torture, and so on in Canada. They accused me by telling the story of reproducing the crime and so on. You see, this is another danger of political correctness for me. This fear that I will hurt you. But I want to hurt you in some sense. I want you to be shocked. That's the only way to move 
people. You know, I don't like it too much, he's often too simplistic, George Orwell. But he says something wonderful here in the foreword to his animal farm. He says, real freedom is the freedom to tell people what they don't want to hear. You know, freedom is not to bring you just good news. And here it's terrible how the interest of authorities and of politically correct fanatics are combined just to that we are not to hurt, to traumatize. You know this terrible uh, strategy in the United States now? Which one? Uh, of so-called trigger warnings, you know? Oh, you should! It's just Google it, trigger warning, you will see. It's not marginal now. It's in the most of universities, at least in my area, there, uh, New York and so on, that uh, it happened all, it started on Columbia University, where a professor of classical literature gave to the students to read some parts of uh, uh, metamorphosis of it. Okay, a kind of a half rape is presented there, a god rape, I don't know who. And one student protested that she was recently raped and that this is too traumatic for her. Then this developed in an entire movement and now when there is anything that may Trump a little bit hurt somebody. You, uh, you, uh, you have to add trigger warnings if you are sensitive to the, and, but I consider this man as, for example, do you know that Mark Twain, mm -hmm. Huckleberry Finn, Tom Sawyer, they are now read in schools in a censored way. Because the way one black person well, is. Well, like, Lolita is another example. Yeah, yeah, but, uh, what I, what makes me terrified here is this idea of how, and this is the sad philosophical implication, we are perceived as extremely vulnerable individuals which we should be protected from all harm and so on. And it's a very sad universe where every encounter with the other is potentially experienced as harmful, you know how you can hurt me. It happened to me, I looked like this at a woman and I even didn't look with desire, I just had some eye inflammation. I was accused of visual rape and so on. Anything can be hurting the other, uh, uh, but you know what is so sad, maybe you experience it, you are there in the United States, very sad, is how if you are already a leftist, to know, you cannot but notice the class uh, dimension of this. Mm -hmm. For example, they may sound very nice, all these uh, feminists and people who worry about uh, harassment, but usually it's that middle class, well-educated people are afraid of lower class people whom they perceive as vulgar, harassing them, and it has this clear dimension of harassment. Did you read, no, you probably didn't, a text of mine, somebody told me a wonderful thing happened, wonderfully, in the sense of yes, horror, yes. of at an American uh, campus. Uh, they were putting a new surface on the building. Mm -hmm. This building was relatively close to a swimming pool. Mm -hmm. On that building, on the steps to it, there were some Latino Mexican workers doing it. In the swimming pool, 
there were student girls swimming, some bathing. Then, of course, my God, it happens. Some of these Mexican workers did some of, how do you call it, Piropo, El Piropo, mm -hmm. through some erotic remarks. Girls protect, protested, and you know how they solved the problem? They built for the workers a special tunnel in plastic and put a special tunnel, a special plastic wall, so that they were not able to see the girls. Okay, the girls felt harassed, but it was at the same time a clear element of racism and so on and so on. So this is why when people talk about harassment, I think that behind it, covered by harassment, can be extremely brutal, racist, hatred and so on and so on. I don't like this attitude of tolerance, which means I tolerate you, but don't come too close to me. Remain at a proper distance and so on. And you know what's so sad is that at the same time physical brutality is exploding today in the world. I read recently that in Brazil rapes are exploding, violence, Venezuela, South Africa is today world capital in rapes. You know that they have a specific name in South Africa for it's a death specialty. It happens almost every day. You rape a, a woman and while making love to her, you are slowly killing her by suffocating her, cutting her with a knife. So I think these are two strictly correlative phenomena, like two sides of a coin. Extreme real life brutality, but at the same time this trigger warning. I don't want to know about it and so on. No, no, we live in a crazy world. If you ask me. Which is the metaphysics of the social network? They have any kind of metaphysics? Twitter, Facebook? I think, ah, now I will repeat your point about how 100 years ago, yes. you know what is so fascinating? That all this metaphysics in the sense of gnostic dream of digital world, you know, people like Ray Kurzweil, we are approaching a singularity, we will be all part of a universal digital mind. Do you know that all this happened already in the 1920s in Soviet Union? Mm -hmm. It was a kind of a spontaneous new age technological... Uh, yeah, 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 where the idea was, I quote him somewhere, even Trotsky was part of it for some point, Trotsky explicitly wrote in 25 that now that in Russia working class has a economic political power, we should move to the next step, which is change human nature. Human animal, homo sapiens, is not good enough. We have totally, biologically, genetically to rework it. And you know what's so interesting? That part of this movement was a trust against sexuality. There were some sexual liberals, like Alexandra Kolontai, whatever. But for many people, it was a very strong tendency there to say that now that we won in economy and politics, sexuality, with its brutal gender, is the last bastion of bourgeoisie. So the dream was to somehow move beyond sexuality.
to change procreation into like you work on a field and so on, to de-eroticize it and so on and so on. It's the same as with today trans transgenderism. Everything becomes flexible and so on, but the key tendency is then to move out of sexuality itself. It's crucial, this movement. How? At a certain point, struggle for sexual freedom mm -hmm. imperceptibly turns around into not just liberation of sexuality, but liberation from sexuality. A minute ago you spoke about the idea that uh, some things need to do twice to uh, work. For example, revolution was necessary to do twice in the case of France. Here I am critical, but also here I am critical of Marx. Marx still thought that revolution will be this one emancipatory act. We know what we are doing. I think that if there is a lesson of the 20th century, is that revolutions not only can go wrong, but in a certain sense, almost, I would say, have to go wrong. I don't think that Stalinism was simply an accidental deviation. It was the logical result. Not, it's not 100% determinism, but you can clearly see the logic. Yes. So I think we have absolutely to accept this uh, risky, tragic dimension of every revolution. That's the tragedy of history. Look at China. You know what always fascinated me? People who celebrate China now. But you know, on the other hand, you have great leap forward which was, according to some estimations, the greatest mass murder maybe in all history. Now the Chinese government is discreetly, they don't want to publish the results, I met some people there, researching in, into how many people did die of unnatural causes in late 50s, that, you know, great leap forward. Yeah. Uh, the idea is worse than even the most radical dissident numbers. It's 50 million, something like that. Can you imagine? But uh, but the, the history is crazy. It's like Holocaust and then Israel. Like, yeah. You know, it's, history is absolutely crazy. And I think we should leave behind this naive Marxist progressive view and accept the tragic dimension of history, which does not mean we just sit behind and do nothing. But we should be more than ever aware of the risks. Let me enter in uh, some uh, uh, Lacan languages to uh, analyze uh, the, the politics. Which is the ghost of the globalization? The ghost. The ghost. Ah, uh -huh. uh, yeah, sorry, in, in that sense you mean, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, At the same time, which is the... Ah, uh, okay, I will put it like this. If by, it depends on, I you mean ghost in the sense that when Marx mentions at the beginnings of capitalism, ghost of communism, and so on and so on. <laughs> I think, if you ask me, maybe it's a wrong answer, but the horror of globalization is precisely, there is no ghost in the sense of some clear ideology behind, global, with globalization, Capitalism really became international. Even at the level of language, I read a wonderful analysis on how, okay, people say we all speak English. 
But an American patriot discovered that this English that we all speak is much closer to that pidgin English that Chinese dealers speak in Singapore than in to any you know. Uh, the problem is this one that capitalism is uh, which these games no longer work. Capitalism is really Eurocentric or whatever. No, today it really cut off its roots. It's like in this sense, like a ghost, it is not rooted in no longer any rooted in any particular culture. We, it can function with practically all ideologies. It can function even with Islam, with Singapore, China, United States, Latin America, whatever you want, and so on and so on. So the horror of, as but you put it, the horror of capitalism is that it's a certain machinery which works and can ignore all specific cultures, civilizations, and so on and so on. It's something absolutely unique in human history. They don't have any goals. So they, they don't have any goals. In this ideological sense, no, no, no. I think. It's, uh, as Alain you put it, insofar as ghost, we mean world. A world in the cultural sense. We live in a certain world with certain cultural values, how we, uh, how we perceive life. I don't think that today's global capitalism has... It has many local ghosts. I put it like this. It's a realm of small gods, small ghosts. Ghosts here and there, but a machine, a certain universal forum machine is reproducing itself and is just using these local ghosts. What is the point, the caption, the keeping point in the globalization, the phallic significer as a significant of all? It's uh, difficult to locate it because there are, I think, okay, it's not this, maybe this phallic exception and so on, but I will give you a more general answer. Mm -hmm. Again, my friend uh, uh, Peter Sloterdijk, the right-wing philosopher, uh, uh, although he's a right-winger, but he, he said that today he used the term cupola. Like, we in the relatively developed country, we live in a cupola. And many people are out of this cupola. Mm -hmm. And then we are inside, we don't even see properly those outside. They are not part of our worlds. That's the function of the TV news, I think. You see horrors in Somalia and so on, but it's there on the screen. It's not part of your world. So uh, uh, that's why we have the problem with refugees. It's like those from outside want to penetrate inside. And I'm here very much a pessimist. In the sense that some people, you also, I'm now jumping to another question, you ask me, are immigrants the new proletarians? Uh, it's too easy question. Some of the leftists claim, yes, immigrants, they don't have any home, they are just freely floating, homeless, they are the new worldwide working class. I don't think we did, because first for Marx, proletarian was something very specific. The productive part of society which is exploited and so on. You cannot say this about uh, Immigrants, but my big problem is this. Immigrants, uh, they don't come from nowhere. 
they come with a certain cultural identity. Although this identity is fractured, but so they are all and so on. And uh, the topic of how these different cultures can clash the problems to which this leads is practically prohibited within the left, at least in the United States and Western Europe. The moment you just mention that there may be problems, you are proclaimed racist, proto-fascist, and so on and so on. But I think that uh, this, this idealization of immigrants, of honest, yes, there are honest suffering people among them, but there are also gangsters, also fundamentalists, and so on. And like, I was so much reproached for even mentioning it. Did you follow this? It happened some three years ago, I think, in England. Does the name Rotterdam mean something to you? No. Oh, yes. It's a nightmare, but it was underreported. But at the end, even Guardian had to admit it. Rotterdam is in Middle England, a city of 100,000, a little bit more, where they discovered that for a couple of years, organized gangs of Pakistani youth people systematically were raping young English girls, but working class girls. They knew very well you don't touch the rich girls. And it was a nightmare. Over 1,000 girls were for years raped, serially, and uh, parents protested to the police. The police said this would create racial problems. If we investigate this, we would be... And it was such a scandal that they were all afraid to approach this. But then, when it exploded, of course, it served the populace anti-immigrant right, but I think the catastrophe is to decide that we don't talk about it. These are serious problems. You know, my leftist friends say, no, I'm a racist. What about, uh, why does it bother you when uh, people from Africa eat their own food, sing their songs? I told them, no, I'm not bothered by this, but ways of life are defined by other things relations of authority and how sexuality is regulated. And these are extremely sensitive points. Where does tolerance stop here? In Slovenia, maybe you know the case, we had some 10 years ago even more a problem, where uh, uh, Roma, Roma, like Gypsy, Roma family, a girl escaped from that family to the police because mm -hmm. her father wants to marry her with a friend of his. And of course, all feminists don't support the girl. But then the father addressed the public and said, listen, arranged marriages are the very core of our way of life. If you take this from us, in two generations, we are the... And in a way, he was right. So, you have to confront this problem. Sometimes there is a choice between what we perceive as women's right and a certain particular way of life. What if oppressing women, homosexuals, and so on, is part of that way of life? I'm only saying that we should openly confront these problems. If not, populists will win all over Europe. Right-wing populists. Do you see that it's cultural possible that China and Russia build an anti-Western, an anti-American alliance? Uh, or will hate between them be stronger and prevent from trusting 
one to the another is possible. This is a complex question, but I think you even mentioned it. Uh, I think, yes, some, there is some tendency in this, that there are two blocks emerging again, America and their allies, on the other hand, Russia, China, and then we, Europe, are somewhere in between and so on. But the first unknown element here for me is India, which is... Yes, that is another question. Yeah, 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 yeah. But the second thing uh, is, everything is so shifting quickly today. Like, you remember we mentioned it, you remember Turkey. Mm -hmm. Turkey, there was almost war with Russia, now Turkey is totally on the Russian side against... And uh, 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 I think that... Uh, Maybe this alliance with Russia will work, but uh, of China. But China, there are problems. The first problem is, do you know that? Because they have too many people economically expanding, needing rough stuff. They know that there are already millions of Chinese in Siberia, Eastern Siberia, working there, exploiting natural resources and so on. And Russians are getting very worried about it. So this I see as one potential obstacle to this scenario. The second obstacle is that, as it's clear from this new Silk Road initiative and so on, China is now so much embedded in worldwide trade. You must know it, my God, isn't Argentina now exporting a lot of soy to China and so on? And uh, that's why... And all Latin America, China. All Latin America, and Africa. Africa. I mean, that's another taboo of the left that I like to break. Okay, it's nice, American imperialism is horrible. But about, what about new forms of Chinese economic uh, colonialism? And do you see that India could be the China of the last century, the end of the last century, the country that the United States will use to divide Asia? Yes, that they will definitely try, yes. Because now already in this political, but it's interesting here how things are changing. Do you remember, we are unfortunately old enough, how decades ago, Pakistan was pro-American, India was closer to Soviet Union. It. Now it's almost different. Pakistan is more relying on China, India is now absolutely pro-Israeli and pro-United States, but what I think is that this is a subtle difference where China, nonetheless, wants to secure its place, not only third world, but a privileged relation with European Union, Europe. And I find maybe this is an option, I'm not sure, namely what Trump and Putin share is destroy Europe, in the sense of European Union. And Putin, as you must know, it's here quite unprincipled. It's disgusting. Putin supports everyone, left or right, Catalonia, Le Pen, and so on. And it's the most shameful part, it's very sad. Did you follow what happened now in Greece and Macedonia, after they reached that compromise about Northern Macedonia? They had to expel some Russian diplomats and so on, who were trying, who were supporting right-wingers on both sides, to prevent this fact, you know why? Because when this problem is solved, Macedonia will you, you join EU and NATO and this will be a lot. So what I'm saying is that one thing that may spoil this pact is that 
Chinese interest is now against United States and in view of this new tariff war tensions with United States, it's to have a strong development with strong Europe. China is now not imminently anti-European. And, and the Western? Uh, what is West today? That's the problem, you know, because with Trump everything is uh, getting crazy, you know. Although, again, people again underestimate the way Trump plays even a crazy leftist body. Like, do you know this tariff war against imports of aluminium, steel from Europe, Canada? But Trump presented this as saving American working class and so on, you know. Don't underestimate this. It was just not just a crazy tariff war. You know what? Really, the weakness of Europe became so obvious here. You know, Varoufakis told me this. Although European Union and German said heroically, no, we will withstand American pressure or with Iran, uh, 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 all the big companies. Going out. Going out, going out. No. In your book concerning learning politics and subjectivity in the late capitalism, you pointed out the revolution for succeeded, it must strike twice. That you see the case of mm. Russia, February, October of 1917. Yeah. Uh, France in yeah, but in, and now unfortunately probably in but, South Africa. And my question is about Latin America. Do you think that it's possible that Latin American populism has not trumped because it's the second blow is still missing and maybe we will have in the next decade another I, I hope so, but I hope it will be a revolution uh, how should I put it self critical revolution. Uh -huh. A revolution of getting rid precisely of this populist predominance. Because uh, countries which really make me sad is not just Venezuela, but Nicaragua and so on and so on. They, they all are, you know, maybe you should uh, teach me here. I'm not sure, but my impression was that they are more reasonable in Bolivia a little bit. They didn't screw it up. Okay, their rhetoric. No, no, it's, it's okay. okay. You are right. Yeah, yeah. Right. And you, you see, it was more um, uh, moderate, and that they they will were administration. They don't destroy the economy. Yeah, uh, yeah. And and so uh, I think that but the question will be when Evo Morales will not be present. Maybe this could change. Yeah, but I believe followed. my sources which claim that nonetheless, okay, Morales up and down, but Linera is the mind there, yeah. you know. But the question is to see what will happen with, will not be the president, the same that happened in Ecuador with the president of Ecuador that also had a reasonable administration. How, how did the old guy, not Lenin, now we have a Leninist yeah, power yeah. there, how did Korea do with the economy. I didn't follow that. Uh, reasonable well, the same case of uh, Bolivia, the economy. Ah, really? For that I am using the example to say that Ecuador also was one of the countries that the population yeah. was well administrated. But, but don't you think that if there is a new trend for Latin America, it had to get rid of this Peronist populist legacy, unfortunately. I don't see any... The second revolution must be a self-critical revolution getting rid of this legacy. Right. One question more. Has the translation uh, still been an emancipatory act? No, I totally agree here with your point. Today, transgression mm -hmm. uh, is 
maybe even the main name of the capitalist game. It's odd. Even in art, I follow this. You know what happened to a, my friend, a painter in London? He wanted to do an exhibition and he went to Saatchi and Saatchi. Thatcher, capitalist, but supporting. And they told him, but you just have paintings. Where is the subversion, you know? They expect you to be a hit today, you know, to do something like, you know, that scandal in America. The day you put an image of Christ into heat and urine and so on, or you do pictures. Like, you must go to the end further and further. This, this type of transgression is the, the name of capitalism today. It's, and, uh, the, my only hope is that this permanent self-transgression is becoming, in a way, boring in itself. This is my basic impression today. Everything is changing so fast, but nothing really changes. We are in the same world. So, no, I don't think we should... You know what would be my dream of a new left? This Leninist conservative, now that... When I put it like this, when I was young, uh, I remember very young, 68 and so on, leftist revolutionaries liked to use dirty language against this official jargon like fuck you and so on. But today, sorry, the right-wingers are much better in speaking in a very vulgar way. Isn't this a unique chance of the progressive left to say, no, we are a true moral majority, we are for decency, we are for civilization and so on. Here I don't agree with some of my friends who are for this anti-fa, anti-fascist, we also have to beat. No, no, it's a unique chance for progressives to say, sorry, conservatives are vulgar today. We want to speak for ordinary people, for their decency and so on and so on. And in this sense, I claim... <laughs> I will go to the end, for which some leftists would hate me, and say, sorry, but Trump is in this bad sense the real revolutionary. He is undermining moral for this, and an intelligent left will say today, we are the only ones who can save what is great in our conservative tradition. That would be my ideal leftist point. If, if we understand revolution that disrupted, Trump in yeah. the real revolution. Unfortunately, yes. Although, again, of course, it's still this fascist game of you make big change so that really nothing changes, you know. And that's the magic of Trump. He, but how will he lowers the taxes at the same? I don't know how it will end. I don't know enough about economy. Do you have some economists who know better? Uh, your friend, I'm still in contact with him, Guy Sorman. What does he think about Trump? I think that they couldn't understand. Uh, it's the same that happened with all the intellectuals in, in the United States. They couldn't understand, they couldn't predict. You know what hurts me? Uh, the best of the liberal left was this, you, you maybe noticed them, this uh, John Oliver, John Stewart, this uh, Alec Baldwin, this endless jokes making fun of Trump. And the more they make fun, the better he is doing, my God. They don't get it, how Trump functions. You know what they shocked me? I remember the last month before elections, where Trump made something that people took for a brutal mistake. Do you remember? Like when he made fun of McCain, of some uh, soldier heroes. And they thought, 
is public suicide. She is finished. No, she wasn't finished. They really don't, even when they caught Trump with all that grabbing them by the pussies vulgarities. This didn't hurt his image, because that's what conservatives, how they reason. He's vulgar like one of us, you know. They identify with his weaknesses and so on. I'm so disappointed by how the liberal left failed to react properly to Trump. This is a great catastrophe. In one of your books, I read one quote mm. that understand is forgiven. I probably mean it uh, uh, critically, because what I'm saying is, I think then it goes on the opposite, because uh, I think that then I go into this example. Okay, this sounds something very deep, you know, but would you say the same about Hitler? No, so there are limits. So no, I think when you have an authentic evil, uh, the more you understand it, the more you must be perplexed. When you read about this, you know what shocked me most? This technology of horror. I read in a book on concentration camps. Isn't something horrible in this? You know that in Germany, they produced industrially. It looked like those instruments to crack nuts, mm -hmm. to torture you to crack testicles. Mm -hmm. Isn't there something horrible in it? That, okay, you do this when you torture someone like in an excess, but that you industrial, you have a special machine. There is something so terrifying in this that... That is impossible to understand. Yes, the moment... Okay, you can understand it in this mediated, purely intellectual way, but no, you understand. cannot understand it in the sense of now I see what, what they did. It. Here, I also don't agree. I think this is part of the same line of argumentation. With this humanist stupidity, when somebody said... Uh, an enemy is somebody whose story you were not prepared to listen. My reaction was, ah, good to know. So Stalin and Hitler are our enemies because we did not listen to their stories or what? No, this is something, there is something terribly wrong in this ideology of just open yourself to the other side. No, there is authentic evil in the world, my God. Where this logic of to understand is to forgive simply. Again, the formula that I like is the one that I think just now already gave it to you. With authentic horrors, the more you understand it, the more you are perplexed and horrified. It's never this pacification. Oh, now I understand it and so on and so on. So it's possible for nationalism to be no resisted. Yes, yes. I still believe it, yes. Because I think that that was the big mistake of the liberal left, mm -hmm. where they disqualified every national self-assertion as automatically first step to fascism and so on. No, I think that this is typical liberal arrogance, mm -hmm. where they think they are above. No, I don't see... Uh, I, I think that an authentic nationalism precisely equals the limit of your admitting your limit. It means, sorry, I'm rooted in my culture, I love it, but I cannot step outside and look at it objectively. It's the beauty of authentic nationalism is that you are pride in your nation, but at the same time you see it as a limitation. 
So I think again that this anti-Nazi, you know what, you must know it. Typical leftist radical attitude is. Somewhere out there in third world, they tolerate others' nationalism, but not here in Western Europe. We are evil. If, and it's the same, I always use this example in my books. How, I even say how you have a precise ladder of, like in United States with liberals, with blacks and Indians, Native Americans, they can be nationalists, it's okay. With Chinese, it's still okay. Arabs, so-so. Then, Italians, uh-uh, but if you are white Protestant, you are not allowed. Like, you can say, I fight for black culture. If you say, I fight for white Protestant culture, you are a fascist and so on. Okay, they will say, because it's the predominant culture. But no, the, all of this doesn't work. True anti-racism is not that you have to renounce your culture. It is absolutely possible to assert your culture, to be proud of it. And I think, again, not being able to admit this is one of the great limitations of the, of the, of the uh, contemporary multicultural left. After the decade of the European Union and beyond the recent yeah. Brexit, has the European culture has evaluated somewhat or there are still the different ex existential attitudes that you wrote The German reflect. Ah, yeah, the joke about toilets. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Is is it still working this idea, or the? I think the... there is a new triad emerging. Mm -hmm. I don't yet have. I don't know how to connect it with toilets. But it's yeah. different. It's Northern Europe. It's Latino South, mm -hmm. and it's Eastern post-communist countries. It's a, a new triad. I must say, I I don't like, of course, this post-communist Europe, which is now consciously moving to the anti-immigrant right and so on and so on. They are even playing very strange games. For example, uh, Orban mm -hmm. in Hungary. You know how closely he is now connected with Putin and so on, you know. Oh, so yeah, finally, finally, the East go again to Russia. Yeah, that's, finally. Very, that's very sad. Of course, there are some of them who are still... Uh, Part of uh, ah, do you know this story of mine? It's horror in Germany. This is a very sad indictment of communist regime. Do you know what happened there? Maybe you read it in my books. I know the story. Wolf Biermann, the famous East German dissident, told me this. Mm -hmm. You know that neo-Nazis in Germany they are much stronger in ex-communist East, Eastern part, much stronger than in the West. And because Wolf Biermann interrupted me, you know, the story told me something terrifying, but beautifully terrifying. He was soon after the, the event, the turnover, the, the, the disappearance of East Germany, he was at some big Green Party round table in East Germany. Mm -hmm. And there were different groups there. One of them was an East German ecological group, which was neo-Nazi, clearly. And he reproached them for being neo-Nazi. And you know what answer he got from them? I love it. Because it was the, you know that usual partial rehabilitation of Hitler. It's, yeah, Hitler did many horrible things like Holocaust, but he also did some good things like trains run on time, highways and so on. 
You know what answer he got from these people? He said, no, we are against Hitler, because although he did some good things, like killing the Jews, but he did some horrible things, like building all the highways that spoiled our nature. So it's the most inverted, the most horrible. So what I'm saying is this, this is already ruining Europe, this authoritarian turn in from it, I even called it ironically, and I was saying here, I called it a new axis of evil. Baltic countries, Poland, Czech Republic, uh, 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 Hungary, Slovenia, Croatia. The level there of subtle rehabilitation, even of fascism and so on, it's, it's quite incredible. And uh, so this is one Europe, then we have this. Latino, Europe, Spain, up to a point, Vatican, Italy. The Vatican, the Vatican at the same time. That yeah, the yeah although, although uh, I think if you ask me that, the Pope will simply... Uh, I know what's nonetheless what I like about this Pope, that many in the Catholic Church, like in Slovenia here, they are now openly attacking the Church, claiming that he is dangerous, that he is... Catholics, even priests. Mm -hmm. And uh, there was a wonderful ironic situation in Slovene media where the lefty ironically told him, but you are Catholics. You should believe that Pope cannot make mistakes. Now you are criticizing. Well, it's part of the, the, the way that you say that finally the people don't believe the things that yeah, they believe. Yeah, yeah. No, so I'm saying that it more... That's why... In so far as France is somewhere in between, but it will not work. You know, people are so much afraid of new Germany and so on. I think I will say some nothing horrible, for which, again, some people will accuse me of fascism or what. I think that a blessing for Europe would have been a strong Germany, politically also. Unfortunately, Germany is strong, even manipulating for its profit economically, but it's terribly afraid for being accused of neo-fascism, whatever, to assert itself uh, politically. The only chance for Europe, I see, is maybe some kind of a new pact between Germany and France. But I'm a, I'm a pessimist, if you ask me. Because again and again, look, it all began with Yugoslav civil war, early 90s. Europe was absolutely unable to intervene in a creative way. At the end, United States had to stop the war. Then we had a immigrant crisis, absolute inability of Europe to impose some politics. Catalonia, you remember, it's not so much that they didn't support Catalonia. It's more than there was no coherent politics. They just washed their hands. It's for the Spain to deal with it and so on and so on. This impotence of Europe is terrifying. And I think that at the end, that's my dream, very sad, that Europe will become for not only for the Americans, but also for the Chinese who are now massively invading Europe as tourists what ancient Greece was in Roman times, you know. You went to Greece for cultural tourism and so on and so on. But again, you know why I'm still sympathetic to Europe? Because in all this confusion of new authoritarian nation-states, and in spite of all its fiasco, 
doesn't Europe still stand for something which is quite sympathetic? A kind of a transnational unity whose aim is to protect basic human rights, to guarantee the minimum of welfare state, and so on and so on. In today's world, I still find Europe very sympathetic. But because now, it may be horrible to say this for a leftist, but wouldn't you agree that did ever, in any moment in human history, so many people live in such a relatively, lead such a relatively good life, safe, free, than in Western Europe in the last 56 years? Isn't this an almost unique moment? of history, you know, but, uh, uh, and this is now threatened. What then remains, okay, I don't trust Europe, but that's so sad that you have islands of rationality, is it still good or not? Some friends told me that one country where it more or less functions is Costa Rica. Is it true or not? Well, yes, it's a, the country in Central America that is more democratic, they, they, they never have... But they did a crazy thing, it's good that nobody wants to attack them, didn't they even abolish the army? Yeah, it's a very small country it's in Central America, um, it's, uh, the neighbors also very small, uh, but uh, it's distinguished with the rest of the neighborhood that they have uh, all kinds of dictatorship, violence, mm. and Costa Rica is still being a country, democratic country, uh, without... Uh, uh, what's the mystery? Do you have a theory? What's the mystery? Mm -hmm. How does it function? What's the mystery? Well, I think that a small... It's, it's a theory. It's a saying that it, which is the mystery of the... Singapore. The, the Singapore, no. and which is the mystery of uh, the Nordic countries in Europe, uh, Sweden, yeah, yeah. Norway. Mm -hmm. A small is different. When you have a yeah, big yeah, country, yeah, yeah. when you have a big yeah, country, yeah, the, yeah, yeah. The this is also what I say. Uh, we already said it about Singapore. You know, you yeah. cannot simply spread Singapore all around there. Obviously, you could move this at a different mm -hmm. scale. You will have a different. But uh, you know where they will encounter limits again with the immigrants. The left was avoiding because my problem is not ignore, tag them. Uh, immigrants. They do suffer and we are responsible for it. Look, uh, attack on Iraq, on Libya, it was madness, not because they were good guys, they were horrors. But they, couldn't they think about, isn't this the irony that two main results, almost, of attack of Iraq is that first, at least Saddam was a wall protecting Arab countries from Iran. Now Iran is the strongest factory in Iraqi politics. Point two, whatever horror Saddam was, women played a certain role. He was, till the end almost, when he played a little bit Muslim card, he was a nationalist dictator. He wasn't a Christian fundamentalist. His foreign minister, Tariq Aziz, you remember, was a Christian and so on. So uh, the role of women, of civil, of and is now much lower than in, much diminished with regard to Saddam's times and uh, Christianity, because of this new mess now. Do you know that more than half Christians from Iraq uh, 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 emigrated, escaped? 
So, are Americans crazy or what? You occupy the country, the result is it falls under the influence of Iran, women lose and uh, 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 Christians lose, are they? And with, with uh, Libya, it was the same. My friend, friends warned me, are we crazy? Because at the end, in the last five, six years, Gaddafi basically capitulated to the West. He collaborated with them. And this was almost an authentic moment. I remember in the last years, one of his last public appearances, Gaddafi said, but are you crazy? ISIS will come, hardliners will come here, and so on. Where is the strategic thinking well, here? Maybe it's not strategic. Maybe it's not, yes. Uh, the last question. Yeah. Marshall McLuhan predicted in 1960 the end of Gutenberg galaxy. Bill Gates in the year 2000 uh, predicted the end of the newspapers. What do you predict about the media in this transition of the information and culture? Do you think this is a very uh, well. My irony is that Bill Gates wrote a book predicting the end of books. No. And he said pathetically, I remember some 15 years ago, this book that you hold in your hand is already an obsolete instrument and so on. Well, what immediately disappeared was his book, which was <laughs> nothing and so on. Uh, uh, no, 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 I am... Uh, uh, I, uh, uh, if you look here, I'm uh, a little bit more optimist, because if you... it's. True that, okay, I don't know how it is in Buenos Aires, but in Europe, like, bookstores are going out. Yes. But it's not so much that people are buying less books, it's more Amazon. Mm -hmm. Amazon is now almost monopolist. I spoke with my publisher in England, they told me, my type of books, these philosophical essays, Amazon is 60 to 70 percent of the sales which they use brutally, you know, yeah. if they are in struggle with a publisher, they simply lie there. You click a book and they say out of stock, even if they have it to block it and so on. So, uh, 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 but you are more optimistic. A little yeah, I am, no, 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 not uh, newspapers in some sense, they are over, but you know why this makes me said, I will tell you exactly, it's not all this that it's more superficial and so on. Look, uh, what I like about a newspaper is that you get these big pieces of paper and somehow you jump up and down and so on, while when you are on the web, you usually select and look what you want to find. You are much more surprised in a newspaper. It's the same way I like old-fashioned bookstores, like Ateneo or those, it, you go there to a philosophy section and you find one or two tables, all the new works displayed. In Amazon, this doesn't function because you, it's just, you it's just what you are looking for and, uh, okay, sometimes, because I buy a lot through them, sometimes they have suggestions for you. They are always wrong. They never guess what I want. But I, I, the good surprise is something which happened to me personally. Look, I'm publishing short political books, but also big fat philosophical books. You know that often the second ones are selling better. 
So don't be too pessimist. There is today a growing interest in philosophy in a very basic sense, this postmodern era of just deconstructing, ironically making fun of it and so on, is disappearing. There is today something that I cannot call but a fundamental desire for critical, serious reflection. It's, it's growing again. It's very, it's, uh, it's very interesting. So here at this level, uh, you know what's another, sorry, another proof of it. I think that precisely because philosophy were just doing this self-critical deconstructionist games, the big metaphysical questions were taken over by scientists. Today, if you want to know, is the universe finite or infinite? Does it have a beginning or not? You don't ask philosophers, you ask quantum cosmologists. If you want to know, are we free or not? You, f you ask Darwinists, evolutionary biologists, uh, brain scientists, and so on and so on. But now, I think philosophy is returning to this big, naive, big, metaphysical questions, which we need to answer today. For example, I love all these debates, do we have a free mind or not? You know, because some people think you can prove we are not free. You know all those experiments that I like, that you make a totally arbitrary decision to grab something. If I measure your nerves, I can discover that before you became aware of your decision, you already sent the signal to your hand to move. In other words, when you freely decide something, your brain just realizes a decision which was already made at the level of your neurons. So does this mean we are not free and so on? I mean, these are, we live in a wonderful era where what some Times it was a big metaphysical question, and you could say in everyday life, I don't care about it. Today, they are becoming questions debated all around and so on and so on. So I nonetheless predict very naively a big return of metaphysics. And this then is very I, good. Finally, you yeah. are optimist, because it's knowledge. I am, I would define myself like this. Uh, uh, I'm aware of all the horrors of Mao, but mm -hmm. my favorite saying of Mao is, you know, the famous one, there is great disorder under the cloud, so the situation is excellent, you know. I am conditional optimist in the sense that moment of, moments of crisis are very dangerous, but if you don't lose nerves and then you can catch an opportunity there. Something new may emerge. There is no guarantee. I know this old-fashioned Marxist, yeah, yeah, at the end, communism okay, yeah. will win. But we, we have a, we, uh, a dangerous situation always also makes a sense. What makes me a pessimist, what do you think, is still that the denial is so strong, for example, of, uh, of the denial of ecological crisis and so on, that, and this is a very sad conclusion, that maybe a big catastrophe, you say that, uh, and we need some kind of a mega-catastrophe, much more stronger global warming or what, to make us do something. People have to feel it. You say that Lenin went to Switzerland to uh, reading Hegel. Yes. Hegel. And it's very interesting, not the historical Hegel, but logic, the most abstract Hegel. 
We need this. This is today is the time to think. Don't be because what leftists were saying years ago, now the establishment is saying we don't need philosophy, we have concrete problems, we have to solve them and so on. No. The first task of thinking is not to solve problems, but to formulate problems, what really are problems, and so on. Yeah? Well, the, the, the right formula of the problem. Yeah, and this is what only thinking does. So, thank you very much. I will stop there. So, but, uh,